I'm not 
JM in the AM Tuesday morning broadcast. I thank you for joining us. It's a nine days format Tuesday. My name is Nahum Siegel, one week away from Tishabov. And um, we are here each morning with uh, very interesting programming. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wines, incredible lectures on history, and we're really concentrating on uh, uh, the historical lectures this week. Uh, they're a big hit, and uh, his um, the information, the uh, the way for you to be in touch with his office to uh, be a subscriber to his lectures and his incredible series on Jewish history, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, this morning we're going to start with part three of the series on uh, Europe and the Jews. Uh, these lectures were given just uh, recently, just uh, anywhere from 12 to uh, 20 months, within the last 12 to 20 months uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, these have never been heard before by this audience. And uh, today we explore the topic of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Rabbi Beryl Wine, in our nine days format on a Tuesday morning, you are listening to JM in the AM. All uh, religions... Uh, suffer from uh, fracturing from the fact that there is no monolithic religion within the religion itself amongst its believers there are different opinions and different groupings and oftentimes uh, the bitterness between the different groupings of the same religion is far greater than the bitterness that exists between different religions. And uh, in the history of Christianity, and tonight we're we're discussing the Eastern Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, these differences uh, have cost uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives uh, over the centuries. And... uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, we have also differences between us, very severe differences, but that has uh, never led to this type of uh, killing and massacres for various reasons. It's not that the Jews are not capable of that, because true believers can do anything, as we are witness. If you're a true believer, then God is on your side. So then you can do whatever you want to do because you're doing God's work. But uh, it has never developed that way within us. But in the outside world, it is quite common. Now, early Christianity uh, split into two almost immediately because of the split in the Roman Empire. That was an Eastern Empire centered in Byzantium, which later became Constantinople, which today is Istanbul, and the Western Empire, which was centered in Rome. And uh, the church, when it successfully converted most of the Roman Empire to Christianity, it did so in two different centers. One was the Latin center of Rome, where Latin was the language. And the other was the Greek center, 
which was in Constantinople, where Greece, uh, Greek rather, was, uh, so to speak, the universal language of that area, the language of the intellect. And uh, therefore, there arose two separate churches with differing beliefs and differing customs, and they were very inimical one to the other. They didn't like each other. Now, we are talking also about a struggle about uh, territory, about wealth, about turf, about all of the good things that go together with all religions, right? And uh, the Eastern, uh, what they call themselves the Eastern Orthodox, which is a Greek word, uh, they claimed to be the real Christians, and they looked at the Western Church as being apostates. And the Western Church responded in kind. They looked at the Eastern Church as being apostates. On top of that, and uh, to further complicate the matter, each of the differing groups faced heresies within their population. Uh, heresy uh, in our time uh, is basically a difference of opinion regarding fundamental beliefs. But again, in the history of the early church, heresy was a capital crime. If someone was convicted of being a heretic, they burned them at the stake. And uh, heresy has no cure because there always will be heretics. There always will be different opinions. There will always be people that deny uh, the ultimate truth of X, Y, or Z. Now, the Eastern Church had a heresy called Manchian. The Manchian heresy was the Eastern Church operated uh, in the Middle East and in uh, Iran and Persia, Iraq, and uh, its major enemy was the Parthian Empire, which was a Persian Empire, that still was pagan. And the Eastern Church attempted to uh, convert the Parthians to Christianity, and uh, if they didn't convert them, to kill them. Now, Jews lived in this area, substantial Jewish population. Most of the Jews did not live in Europe in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. Most of the Jews lived in the Mediterranean area, and therefore most of the Jews were subject to the Eastern Orthodox Church more than the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Manchian, that was a combination of paganism, the ancient Persian belief, the Zoroastrians, which the Talmud describes for us. They believe in uh, gods of light and of darkness. And so, for instance, we have it in Bame uh, Madlikim, that in that Mishnah that we recite, so we say that a uh, person that uh, uh, blows out the candles Friday night because he's afraid of the non-Jews. What is he afraid of the non-Jews? 
because sometimes Friday night was the night of the god of darkness. And according to the Zoroastrians, if it was the night of the, god of, of the god of darkness, you weren't allowed to have light. And the uh, Jewish woman that lit her candles, if they saw light in the house, uh, so then the Jew was subject uh, to literally to be killed. And therefore, the opinion in the Mishnah is uh, that uh, there, one does not, so to speak, violate the Sabbath, you know, because it's a, a life-threatening uh, situation to have lights on in the house, to have candles burning. And uh, it's throughout the Talmud, if we look carefully, we see many references uh, to the Parthians, to this type of paganism, and to the difficulties that existed because of it. Now along came Christianity, uh, dominated from Constantinople, and they conduct a war against the Parthians, the war that's... it's not over in five minutes, as we would like wars to be over. It took like 110, 112 years. I mean, history is a long-running thing. We are not, but history is. And uh, eventually the church prevails, and the Parthian emperor and empire expire. And now Eastern Orthodox Christianity is dominant in the entire area from almost India on the east uh, to uh, the Balkans on the west. And from Turkey and Greece in the north uh, to uh, the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, etc., to the south. Enormous swath of land. Now there's a religion that grows up called Manchian. Now the Manchian heresy is that they combine uh, the Zoroastrian ideas with Christianity. And therefore they have a hybrid form of paganism. Uh, The Christianity rejects that, rejects it very strongly. And the Manchian religion uh, did not... uh, believe in the divinity of the Christian Savior. It did not believe that uh, God came down to earth in the form of a human being. It had many heresies involved with it. And therefore, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, promotes a war, literally a war against the Manchian heresy, a war which lasts two, three, four centuries, and eventually destroys all the mansions. In this war, there is an element that affects the Jewish people. Why? Because the Eastern Orthodox Christians said, in effect, well, the reason the mansions can believe that is because the Jews put them up to it. The Jews uh, are the ones that don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. The Jews are the ones that, uh, they're the troublemakers. Now, in the Talmud, for instance, all references to Christianity are references to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. They are not references to Roman Catholicism. 
because they were not uh, familiar with Roman Catholicism. They dealt only with Eastern Orthodox. Now, the Eastern Orthodox were different in many respects. They, uh, they did not have a Latin Bible. They had the Greek Bible, and in fact, they probably had the Septuagint, the Targum Ashivim, which was uh, translated into Greek. Uh, the Torah was translated into Greek centuries earlier. Uh, the New Testament was in Greek, originally either in Hebrew or Greek, but it certainly was not in Latin. The Latin translation came later, the Douay Bible. Because of that, you have different, uh, you know, you make a translation of a translation of a translation, you're not going to get the exact nuance correct. For instance, the concept of the virgin birth, which uh, came late into Western Christianity uh, was based on the mistranslation of the Hebrew word Alma, which appears in the prophet Yeshayahu. Alma means in Hebrew a young woman, like Elem means a young man. In Greek, Alma, a young woman, became also a synonym for a virgin. And in the Latin, it became only a virgin. And therefore, you have this whole cult of the virgin birth, which is predated Christianity. And the Roman emperors also said that somehow they were born of virgins. It was like a sign of uh, being supernatural. Uh, but in the Christianity, it came into being because of these types of mistranslations. Now, the Greek version was closer to the Hebrew version. And therefore, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, many of these beliefs did not exist. But the Eastern Orthodox Church was far more primitive than the Roman Catholic Church. It did not have uh, philosophic uh, underpinnings as the uh, Roman Catholic Church had and it also uh, incorporated uh, icons and statues and all sorts of holy places that were revered and uh, therefore it was much closer to paganism in the eyes of the Jews than was the Roman Catholic Church. Now we have the famous discussion in the uh, in Tosfos in the uh, in the 11th century, 12th century in France. Uh, the French rabbis discussed how can they do business with the non-Jews, with the Catholic population. For instance, uh, in the in the season of the year when the Catholic holidays, Christian holidays, occur. Uh, in, in the mission it says it's forbidden the three days before, three days afterward you're not allowed to do it and then there was a question of wine dealing with non-Jewish wine or selling wine to non-Jews Rashi's main customers were not Jews and so therefore Tosas came to the conclusion which was adopted by European Jewry that uh, Christianity is not paganism and therefore, the laws of Avodah the laws regarding paganism, do not apply to Christianity, to Roman Catholicism, because of the fact that uh, 
they are technically monotheists even though there's a trinity etc that is discussed that, that, that matter was discussed thoroughly by uh, the great scholars of the medieval time and it facilitated Jewish life in Europe however the Jews who lived in the Middle East and there was a large Jewish community here in the land of Israel still in the 4th and 5th centuries it's only then that the Jewish community would begin to evaporate and move to Babylonia but there was a large Jewish community in the land of Israel and an even larger Jewish community in Iraq and Babylonia and they were under the rule of the Eastern Orthodox Church it was much harder to deal with the Eastern Orthodox Church as being monotheistic than it was to deal with Roman Catholicism and therefore uh, we find that the Jews had a very difficult life under the Eastern Orthodox Church when it dominated those countries and uh, the Jews were the uh, Jews naturally refused the mass conversion and the Eastern Orthodox uh, did to the Jews what they did to the Manchians they persecuted them they executed them eventually they drove them out of the land of Israel from about the 5th century till the 15th century for almost a thousand years there's no major Jewish population in the land of Israel there still were Jews here but we're talking about a few hundred people we're not talking about any major Jewish population in the 15th and 16th centuries there came a larger Jewish population because of the expulsion from Spain and then in the 19th century the beginning of Jewish settlement here that has resulted in six and a half million Jews being here now but the Eastern Orthodox Church the Byzantine Church was determined to eradicate the Jewish presence in the Middle East and it would have succeeded except the Lord gave them a gift called Islam and just at the point at the tipping point so to speak when the Eastern Orthodox Church was on the verge uh, not only of driving the Jews out of the land of Israel but of eliminating the Jewish the ancient powerful numerous Jewish community that existed in Babylonia um, Muhammad came along the sword of Islam and within uh, a few decades the Eastern Orthodox Church was driven back to Constantinople and the Middle East became Muslim and the Muslims also converted by the sword but the Jews somehow came to an accommodation with the Muslims that they could not come to with the Eastern Orthodox Church now the Roman Catholic Church also had a heresy which they also blamed on the Jews so there's a history here I mean that's the reason I'm gonna you know like Hitler was able to blame communism on the Jews and the people believed it because any time there is a heresy and communism is a heresy uh, there's an ancient understanding in the non-Jewish world in Europe is that it, the Jews are responsible 
we are the creators of all heresies. And therefore, the foreign minister of Sweden can say that we created ISIS. And to us, as ridiculous as it sounds, if you look at it again in the backdrop of history, in the backdrop of the type of accusations made against the Jewish people over the millennia in Europe, it resonates. It has, uh, it has legs, so to speak. It can, it can be. So the Roman Catholics had a heresy called uh, the, the Gnostics, G-N-O. The Gnostics. Now the Gnostics were a group of people who also denied the divinity of the Christian Savior. Uh, Gnosticism was based on the Greek word which meant knowledge. And they created a, uh, so to speak, a knowledge rationalist basis for faith, uh, accepting many doctrines of Christianity, but denying many others. The church, uh, the, just as the Eastern Church persecuted the Manchians, the Western Church uh, persecuted the Gnostics. And long-running 150-year war and eventually destroyed them. But again, the Jews were held to be responsible for uh, these uh, problems. Now, the Eastern Church, for instance, uh, was very big on monasteries. They are on that even till today. You want to see uh, an Eastern... uh, Orthodox monastery on the road to the Dead Sea, there's a place called Marsaba, uh, which is built into the, uh, into the cliff, into the mountain. Uh, I think there's today a few monks still there. But the monastery was very big. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, it afforded uh, a separation from practical life but it created a sect of holy people. And Eastern Orthodoxy exists on the basis of holy people. All of this, uh, there are are a lot of things that are in the, uh, I don't know how to put this, that that I don't get uh, excommunicated, but uh, there are a lot of things that have drifted into our world that are not necessarily part of us. You know, we have a lot of baggage. You don't stay uh, 2,000 years in exile, 2,000 years uh, being a a distinct minority without uh, having acquiring uh, some uh, baggage that's not yours. And uh, the uh, Eastern Orthodox world was uh, based upon that there were special people, holy people, who didn't have to behave as a holy person. But they had special powers. I mean, the most uh, telling example for our time is that of Rasputin, uh, the monk uh, that uh, advised uh, the Tsar and the Tsarina in the First World War, in the period before and the period during the war and who finally was killed by other members of the Russian aristocracy because he was leading Russia 
they felt into a great disaster, which he was, and the disaster happened anyway. But he was a monk, but he was a womanizer, he was a thief, he was a, you name it, he was it. But he was holy. So the creation of holy people who don't have to behave holy is, uh, was a very strong influence. And it creates uh, all sorts of difficulties. Now, uh, the, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church uh, was not centralized the way the Roman Catholic Church was. The Roman Catholic Church had a, a pope who was the supreme uh, pontiff. It had the College of Cardinals, it had a hierarchy, archbishops, bishops, priests, etc. It was very well organized. The Eastern Orthodox Church was more chaotic. It did not have a pope. It does not have so. One today, it has patriarchs, but there's a patriarch in Greece, and there's a patriarch in Jerusalem, and there's a patriarch in Serbia. Uh, it is much more diffuse. And therefore, it is much more nationalistic, depending on the country that it is in, uh, than, for instance, uh, the Roman Catholicism, which is supposed to be supranational. It has nothing to do with the country that it's in. Everybody is supposed to obey uh, what uh, Rome says. Because of that, therefore, Jews found it uh, easier uh, to deal with the Eastern Orthodox churches after a while because they were, it was all local, right? What did Tip O'Neill said? All politics are local. In local, you can come out with something. You're not arguing theology. You're not arguing uh, uh, politics. You're not arguing, you know, you want to get your street fixed. Or you want to, you know, let us alone. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, in these areas, it was uh, more manageable. But as I mentioned, since the Middle East became Muslim, the Eastern Orthodox Church had very little effect now on the Jews and won't have much effect for almost a thousand years until the Jews come to Russia. Russia is Eastern Orthodox. The religion in Russia was Eastern Orthodox. And uh, for instance, during the Crusades, uh, during the first crusade, uh, when the crusaders came to Constantinople, they burned the city down. They destroyed, even though it was all Christian. Because to them, the infidel was anybody who was not exactly like them. And uh, since the Eastern Orthodox were not uh, like them, they killed them all. And the rupture between the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church has lasted till our time. Uh, Pope John uh, Paul uh, attempted to uh, make a reconciliation, met with the patriarch in uh, uh, the Greek Orthodox patriarch in, in uh, Istanbul, etc. But uh, there is great tension, and there's great tension here in Jerusalem between the different ones. I mean, the, the example is uh, there's a uh, site here in Jerusalem that's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which according to uh, Christian belief 
is the burial place of Jesus. Well, who owns, who has the right to the church of the Holy Sepulchre? So every year there are fist fights. The Israeli police have to come in and separate the warring priests as to who has the, you know, who has the right to hold the service, when should be held, etc., etc. Because until this day, the enmity between them is not abated. There's also a difference in the calendar. Uh, in the uh, 1500s, it became apparent uh, that the uh, calendar was out of whack. Now, the reason for it is that the, the day of the sun, the year of the sun, is 365 and a quarter, approximately a quarter days. If you have a year that's 365 days, the quarters start adding up. And over the centuries, it became uh, obvious that uh, it, it was, there were all sorts of problems because then it would start moving around the year, the holidays, etc. So Pope Gregory, uh, they called an 11-day recess. For 11 days, the date remained the same. And then they started again. So that caught everybody up. And he had the system that we have today of leap years. Sometimes February is 28, sometimes it's 29. All of which is to adjust this. Now, this calendar is also off a little. But nobody seems to care that much about it. Though every uh, year there is a resolution in the United Nations... Uh, to perfect the calendar. And the way to do it is to skip a day. Now, if you skip a day, we're going to have a problem because Shabbos will be Friday. So until now, that resolution has never uh, gained traction simply because of the fact that the Catholic countries won't let it. But uh, if it ever does pass, we'll have... uh, Another difficult uh, situation to face. In any event, so the Roman Catholic Church adopted the Gregorian calendar. The Eastern Orthodox Church kept the old calendar, which they keep until today. So for them, the Christian holidays are 11 or 12 days later. It's never December 25th. It's January something or other. And uh, that uh, creates its problems. So let's look at the Jews now. The Jews come to Europe. Uh, They're under the Western Church. Uh, They move east. They have to move east. Uh, Eventually they end up in Poland, in the the Baltic states, in Belarus, in Ukraine, in Russia. Now, these countries uh, never liked each other. They are of different religions. Poland is staunchly Roman Catholic. The Ukraine has its own brand of Catholicism. Russia is, like most of the Slavic countries, Eastern Orthodox. And uh, whether the world wants to admit it or not, because it's not politically correct, most of our our problems are problems of religion. What goes on now in the world is certainly a problem of religion, even though no one will call it that. It's a conflict of religion, of faith. 
Uh, and uh, there is no fight like a religious fight. Because, as I mentioned before, everything is permissible under such circumstances. And the Jews are caught in the middle. The Jews are caught in the middle between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. Now, until Peter the Great, in the late 17th century, uh, there were practically no Jews who lived in Russia proper. The Jews lived in Poland, the Jews lived in Lithuania, Jews lived in the Ukraine, but they did not live in Russia. Russia then was like Muscovy. It was the heartland of Russia. Peter the Great, you always have to be uh, wary of people who call themselves the Great, but Peter the Great uh, expanded Russia, and he wanted to westernize Russia. He wanted to push Russia to the west. He built the great city of St. Petersburg, which he called a window to the west. But he, uh, he uh, defeated the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, and he took away vast swatches of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and incorporated them into Russia. And now, when uh, the Jews, for the first time in Eastern Europe, had to deal with Eastern Orthodox religion. Uh, the Russian church, till today, uh, has a concept called Holy Mother Russia, meaning that to them, Russia is holy land. Uh, to them, uh, the land of Israel is not holy land. The holy land is Russia. Holy Mother Russia. And they always uh, influenced the Tsars that in Holy Mother Russia, no infidels should live. Because that's a defilement of Holy Mother Russia. It's a contradiction to this concept. And therefore, that is why the Russian Tsars had a problem for 200, 250 years until uh, the time of the revolution, they had a problem that they called the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem is, how do you get rid of the Jews from Russia? They don't belong there. Now, the reason that they were there is because Russia expanded. Had Russia remained in its original uh, pre-Peter the Great boundaries, uh, they wouldn't have had the problem because there wouldn't have been Jews living there. But now the Jews were there. And the church constantly stirred it up. And since the Russian Tsar was also the titular head of the Russian church, so he therefore had the responsibility to somehow solve the Jewish problem. And uh, they never came to a satisfactory solution but uh, they created a terrible time for the Jews. Terrible time. Uh, simply because of this religious belief. Now, uh, throughout Russia, you know, even if today, you'll go along the road, there will be uh, uh, statues, icons, holy places, places to worship, etc. 
whole symbol of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And in halacha, there were all sorts of discussions, where to pray, where a Jew could pray, if a Jew was on the road, how far he had to be, etc. Things which to us, uh, uh, we're not, we are not aware of, and we really don't know what they're talking about. But there it was in everyday life. It was part of the structure of the community, all of these holy places which existed. And it had a, uh, an effect on Jewish life. Uh, we, uh, we don't live in such an atmosphere, or in, even when we did in the United States, we don't live in such an atmosphere. So it's hard for us to realize how oppressive the atmosphere of enforced Christianity can be and how it affects a society and how uh, difficult Jewish life was. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, many things occurred in Jewish life that simply were a reaction to this type of situation. Now, in the Balkans, the Jews came to the Balkans as well. There was a large Jewish population in Serbia and what was then Yugoslavia later. Uh, there also you had the Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church bump into each other. Croatia, for instance, is Roman Catholic. Serbia is Eastern Orthodox. Austria, the Austrian Empire, Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg Empire, was Roman Catholic. It controlled the Balkans. But the Balkans were uh, a polyglot group of people, and they were many of them were Eastern Orthodox, as Serbia was. And in fact, we could say that much of the First World War, the beginning of the First World War, which begins with Austria and Serbia, you know, we just had an incident that Turkey shot down a Russian plane. So, so far, just the two egomaniacs are hollering at each other. But uh, no one expects, but a century ago, this would have been war. Because what happened was that the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated by a Serbian. He was the Archduke of Austria. He was assassinated, it wasn't a Serbian, it was a Bosnian that assassinated him. But it was under the, Austria blamed Serbia, Serbia said it's not our fault, and ended up that 20 million people got killed and you had a war of four and a half years. That changed all of Europe till today. But the war was also a religious war, because Austria was Catholic and Serbia was Eastern Orthodox. And that plays a role in all of this. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, for some reason in the Second World War, uh, the Jews in Serbia were able to survive much better than the, the Croats, for instance, destroyed the Jewish community. The Slovenes, they destroyed the Jews in the Holocaust. The Serbia did not. And therefore, in the Balkans War, which took place in the 1990s, Israel was not quick to condemn Serbia when the rest of the Western world did so. Uh, so there are, it's, it's so complicated, it is so beyond the ability to 
somehow piece it together. Uh, but the Jews were caught. So let's let now Israel is caught in the middle, right? How can you not be against Serbia? Look what they did, right? Look what they did to the Muslims. Look at the, the atrocities they committed. On the other hand, how can you be against Serbia when thousands of Jews were saved because of Serbia? So there never are any easy answers to all of this. And this uh, religious conflict always caught the Jews in the middle. Now, uh, the uh, Byzantine Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, had a great influence on uh, art and architecture in the Jewish world. You find today uh, uh, many uh, artifacts and mosaic floors, etc., from the Byzantine period of synagogues that were built exactly the way the Byzantine churches were built. Same type of form, same type of artistry, the same type of uh, uh, coloring, etc. Because uh, we always adopt the uh, prevalent uh, culture. So in the Middle Ages, for instance, uh, the question arose whether or not synagogues could have stained glass. Because the non-Jewish houses of worship all had stained glass. Now they had magnificent stained glass. And there's a whole discussion in halacha, whether you're allowed to have stained glass. But the rabbis were forced to allow it because the people wanted it. The people wanted, you know, if the the church has stained glass, then why shouldn't the synagogue have stained glass? And uh, the same thing was with the Eastern Orthodox architecture, artistry, uh, mosaics, everything until statues. Statues naturally were never allowed. And no iconic forms were allowed. But generally speaking, uh, the Byzantine church had a great deal of influence on how synagogues looked and how how Jews dressed and how Jews uh, viewed uh, the arts uh, generally. The cockpit of the problems between the Eastern Orthodox and the Jews was always in Turkey, because that was Constantinople. Now, Turkey turned Muslim, but they never eliminated the Eastern Orthodox Church from Turkey. And therefore, uh, uh, the Jews uh, sought to exploit the division between the Muslims and the Uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians to their advantage to allow them somehow uh, to exist, to do commerce, etc., etc. The uh, problem with that was that if anything went wrong, the Jews were blamed. And that became a uh, very, very difficult uh, situation many times. But most of the time, the Jews in Turkey were able to be under the radar simply because of the conflict between the Christians and the Muslims. So, so to speak, they didn't have time for the Jews. It's only when the Jews came up and uh, made demands, or for instance, uh, Shabzai Tzvi, when he claimed to be the Messiah, then uh, trouble occurred. But otherwise, uh, they were able to escape it. But they were never able to escape it in Russia. Never.
Now, here in Jerusalem today, you have a very strong Eastern Orthodox Church. It's not numerous, but it owns a lot of property, and it is supported by Russia. It was supported by Russia even when Russia was communist, because it's the foothold here in Jerusalem. And therefore, uh, for instance, the Russian compound, uh, Russia wants it back. They say they own it. And Israel is in serious negotiations regarding it, because who wants to start up with Russia? And that was based on Russian orthodoxy. And the same thing is true of many, many other places in the country. There are very strong presence here. Now, there are breakoffs from the Russian Orthodoxy. There's, for instance, the Armenian Church. So we all know there's an Armenian quarter in, in the old city. Now, the Armenian Church, they are Eastern Orthodox, but they are not the Eastern Orthodox. They're Armenian. In the uh, First World War, the Turks massacred a million and a half Armenians a factor that the world has ignored until now. Turkey denies it until today, even though there's incontrovertible proof of it. So there's the Armenian church. Uh, the uh, head of the Coptic church in Egypt is now visiting Jerusalem, which is a major thing because no uh, official Egyptian has ever come to Israel since 79 even though we have this peace treaty, etc. But he came because it's the funeral of the Coptic patriarch of Jerusalem. He came to the funeral. So that also is a Christian church in the middle of a Muslim country, very badly persecuted, protected only by the fact that the military rule Egypt, if the Muslim Brotherhood would rule it again, God forbid, so then they would be destroyed. So you have all, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church is fragmented. It's little pieces. But in the little pieces, uh, almost all of them somehow uh, influence and uh, have a connection to Jews because Jews live in those countries. And here in Israel especially, uh, because all of them own property here. In fact, the Knesset building uh, is on land that is owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. The Knesset has a lease, I think a 99-year lease. What will happen when the lease expires? So uh, I guess the Knesset will figure it out themselves what to do. They will have to. But we don't realize how much property here in the land of Israel is owned by the Eastern Orthodox Church. And if you own property, you have influence. And if you have influence, then it works many ways. Now, uh, the, uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian struggle, the Eastern Orthodox Church has uniformly been on the side of the Palestinians from day one, even though their presence there is minimal. Most of the Christian Arabs in the Palestinian authorities have left. 
the Palestinian uh, Christian Arabs have declined by 70% in numbers. You can find them all over the United States and Chile and Argentina, but they're not here anymore. Nevertheless, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, was very pro-Palestinian, much more than the Roman Catholic Church. But again, it depends, because sometimes, locally, they're the best friends that you have. And they help. It's a doctrinal thing. It's a, it's a question of coming, uh, the, the whole problem of the state of Israel to Christianity generally is a doctrinal thing that has not yet been solved. How, how to deal with it. Because it was something that was not supposed to happen. And if you posit that things are not supposed to happen and they happen, then you have, uh, you have difficulties. You have great difficulties. And uh, the uh, Christianity generally in Europe now is on the, the decline. Uh, communism eliminated much of the power of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, though uh, it is not dead in Russia at all. But it's not what it once was. After 75 years of communism, of atheism, it was weakened considerably. And uh, generally, the climate in the Western world today is anti-religious, anti-Christian. Uh, Roman Catholicism uh, suffered greatly in Europe. Its strength today is mainly in the uh, South America, Asia, and the what was called the undeveloped countries. That's where its growth is. But in the, in the heartland of Europe, it is not a... Uh, it is not on the on the upgrade, let's put it that way. It doesn't really uh, have the clout that it once had. And therefore you have a more universal uh, and less doctrinal church because of the fact that it has to deal with those things. The same thing is true of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, in Greece, for instance, uh, it's estimated that most of the population doesn't believe in anything which uh, and church attendance is down it's a uh, it's a difficult time for uh, both the, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox and as we'll discuss also for the Protestant churches uh, it's going both ways at the same time uh, there are those that are stronger and but most of them are weaker most of them have uh, very little uh, uh, growth and very little uh, their influence has been diminished and diminished and diminished so uh, we'll see what happens now uh, in the holocaust uh, the, uh, the complaints against the eastern orthodox church by the Jews uh, certainly are less than they were against the Roman Catholic church because they felt that the Pope could have done something no one uh, really uh, and, and don't forget that Greece, so to speak, was uh, uh, part of the good guys, right? They were really the allies, uh, etc. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, the, uh, the resentment wasn't there as it is against uh, the Roman Catholic Church for its participation or encouragement even in what happened. So uh, the Jews in Europe uh, found themselves in a very bad situation, not of their own causing, but simply because of the ruptures that existed in Christianity. 
and the continual wars and the continual competition and continual heresies. There will be many more heresies and many more people will be killed because of the heresies. But uh, eventually, at the end of the day, there were people that believed that all the heresies were initiated or somehow supported by Jews and therefore it became a Jewish problem and not just a Christian problem as well. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Wine on the topic of the Eastern Orthodox Church as we explore Europe and the Jews, a great brand new uh, history series that we are presenting uh, here at J.M. in the A.M. in our nine days spoken word format. Three minutes before 7 o'clock on this Tuesday, cloudy skies, a high temperature of 75. Can you imagine after all that uh, hot weather, we're uh, at a high of 75 for today? Uh, 92 in Yerushalayim, up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Masora are at 60 degrees. 63 here in uh, New York City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. I want to wish a happy birthday to Yaakov Arbach. Listener Yaakov is celebrating a birthday, and we say happy birthday to him from all of us here at JM in the AM. Um, according to the uh, United States Ambassador to Israel, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump's administration was instrumental in, in resolving Israel's crisis with Jordan. This according to David Friedman, American ambassador to Israel, in his first official meeting with Knesset members on Tuesday. Uh, Friedman praised American mediation efforts following an incident in which an Israeli security guard from Israel's embassy in Amman was attacked by a terrorist, shot him to death in self-defense, and a, a civilian was killed as well. We had a situation in Jordan that could have gone bad, Friedman said, with the work of officials in the U.S., together with the Prime Minister of Israel and King of Jordan, without a lot of noise and with careful deliberation. We were able to defuse a very difficult situation very quickly that under different circumstances wouldn't have been resolved. Friedman addressed a meeting of the Knesset Caucus on U.S.-Israel relations, which is headed by MK's Nachman Shai and Avraham Nagis. He advised the MK's to strengthen the bond with the U.S. by speaking less and listening more. So there you go. Uh, Tuesday morning at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. In the background, uh, we should have, there we go. There we go. Galei Tzal in the background. Our news from Israel is coming up. More coming up from Rabbi Wine. Don't forget his lecture uh, information is available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Or you can go to the web, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, for information about uh, his uh, lecture series and all the different things that are available. Uh, they have a subscription service and a whole bunch of other great things there that uh, you can take advantage of. RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com, or 1-800-499-WEIN. Those would be the best ways to take care of that. We'll do our community calendar coming up. Lots of stuff happening for the nine days, including some Siyumim and events that uh, have been planned and are going to be happening, some of them tonight in our community. We'll talk about that. And Tishabov is one week from today. Make sure to be tuned in, uh, not only in the morning, but uh, toward the end of the fast when Charlie Harari and Project Inspire will be here at the Nahum Siegel Network.
Galaitzal Israel Army Radio 2 p.m. newscast next to JMM. Galaitzal Ashashtaim Kanran Yovnai Imash Koray Achshav. לאחר דיון אחד בלבד, ועדת חוקה של הכנסת אישרה לקריאה ראשונה את חוק היסוד, שדורש רוב של 80 חברי כנסת לחלוקתה של ירושלים. כתבנו מיכאל האוזר טוב. הצעת החוק של הבית היהודי תעלה לקריאה ראשונה כבר מחר, היום האחרון של מושב הקיץ של הכנסת, כאשר הוכרז על המהלך רק אתמול. באופוזיציה טוענים כי מדובר במכתב שלא מאפשר לחברי הכנסת לדון בחוק כמו שצריך. מרכזת האופוזיציה מרב מיכאלי כתבה, הבית היהודי מבזה את ירושלים בהצבעת מחטף ועוד בימים כה נפיצים. בקואליציה מתכוונים לאשר סופית את החוק רק במושב הבא, לקראת סוף השנה. אייל, אחיו של אמיר פרישר גוטמן, הודה בטקס ההשכבה של היוצר בתיאטרון הבימה בתל אביב לאחיו שהציל את הבת שלו, שחר. לפני שנה וחצי כבר הכינו אותנו לפרידה. אמרת שזאת השליחות שלך, לעזור לאחרים. השקעת בכולם אנרגיות שכבר לא היו לך, עד טיפת האנרגיה האחרונה. אנחנו מודים לך על כל רגע, גם על רגעי האקסטרים, שלפעמים נראו כאילו נלקחו מהצגה שאף אחד באמת לא יכול לכתוב. עכשיו הגיע הזמן לנוח. תודה על שחר. נשיא ארה״ב טראמפ שוב תוקף את שר המשפטים שלו וראש ה-FBI הזמני, כתבנו נתן אל דרשן. שר המשפטים ג'ף סשנס נקט בגישה מאוד חלשה כלפי הפשעים שביצע הילרי קלינטון ואל מול ההדלפות המודיעין, כתב טראמפ בחשבון הטוויטר. הבעיה היא שראש הבולשת הפדרלית המכהן, אנדרו מקייב, שתפקידו לחקור את קלינטון, קיבל ממנה מימון בעבור אשתו. טראמפ גם טען מבלי לספק הוכחות כי אוקראינה ניסתה לפגוע במסע הבחירות שלו ותהה היכן החקירה של שר המשפטים. שגרירת ישראל ברבת עמון עינת שליין והמאבטח זיו שעמד במרכז האירוע בירדן אמרו היום כי הם שמחים שהפרשה מאחוריהם. ירדה לי אבן מהלב, אני שמח להיות פה. הרגשנו באמת, אני ועינת, שעומדים מאחורינו ועושים את כל המאמצים. והרגשנו את זה, ואני שמח ש... שאנחנו פה. המאבטח הותקף והגן על חייו. גם הם מבינים את זה, עובדה שגם השלטונות הירדניות קיבלו את הגרסה הזאת. ועדת הבריאות של הכנסת אישרה סופית רופא בשירות הציבורי. לא יפנה מטופל שלו למרפאתו הפרטית במשך חצי שנה. התקנה תיכנס לתוקף בנובמבר. כתבתנו טל זרביב. הוועדה אישרה היום פה אחד את התקנות, לפיהן רופא שטיפל בלקוח במסגרת ציבורית לא יוכל לטפל בו באופן פרטי במשך שישה חודשים מיום מתן הטיפול או הייעוץ הציבורי האחרון שנתן לו. רופא שיפר הוראה זו דינו שישה חודשי מאסר או קנס של כ-14,000 שקלים. לוויין הסביבה הראשון של ישראל, ונוס, ישוגר בעוד כשבוע מבסיס החלל בגיניה הצרפתית. כתבנו יותם לביא. הלוויין שנבנה על ידי התעשייה האווירית הוא מיזם הדגל של סוכנויות ההחלל של ישראל וצרפת. לאחר שישוגר הוא ישייט בגובה 720 קילומטרים ויעשה שימוש במצלמה שקולטת 12 אורחי גל שונים, חלקם בלתי נראים לעין. ונוס יצלם פעם ביומיים כ-110 אזורים ברחבי כדור הארץ על מנת לבחון ולמדוד שינויים בצמחייה, בקרקע ובאקלים. והתחזית הכבדה ניכרת בעומסי החום, הקלה רק בסוף השבוע. אלה החדשות שעורך דן דובין. I want to remind everybody that Hidden, that uh, brand new documentary from Project Witness, is being shown at a bunch of local events. Um, tonight at the Young Israel of Avenue K, 2818 Avenue K in Brooklyn, New York. Again, that's Young Israel of Avenue K tonight, 2818 Avenue K starting at uh, 8 p.m. 
tonight in Far Rockaway at the White Shul on Empire Avenue, starting at 8 p.m. for uh, Hidden, the documentary from Project Witness. In Abara Park, uh, tomorrow at Terrace Golda, 1362 50th Street for the ladies, starting at 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. And for the men at Lipschitz Hall, uh, 5014th Avenue, starting at 8 p.m. That's tomorrow night. In Teaneck, this coming Saturday night at Congregation Monday, Yeshurun on West Englewood Avenue, beginning at 10 p.m. Oh, and in Monticello, at Monticello High School, on Brakey Avenue, uh, 4.30 and 7.30. That's happening uh, tomorrow night, 4.30 and 7.30 in Monticello. Uh, information about all of this, the uh, the uh, documentary entitled Hidden, go to projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org, or dial 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS for information. Uh, welcome to those who are part of the Holocaust Education Conference that's going on. Today it continues at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Again, that is 718-WITNESS, uh, 718-WITNESS. The debate between Tuvia Tannenbaum and Peter Beinart about Jews and politics is tonight. 8 p.m. at the Triad Theater, 158 West 72nd Street on the second floor. That's the Jewish Theater of New York. Um, that is happening tonight beginning at uh, at 8 p.m. Information, jewishtheater.org. Tonight, the community is invited to an evening of remembrance, comfort, and renewal, benefiting the Chama Comfort. That's tonight with a seum at 645. The program begins uh, earlier at 615 at the Teaneck Jewish Center on Sterling Place in Teaneck, New Jersey. Information, nechamacomfort.com, nechamacomfort.com. The Amit Goldemeir chapter on Staten Island has their annual Yom Iyun today with Andy Goldsmith, Dr. Smadar Rosenzweig, and Dr. Yael Landman Wormuth. It begins at 10 o'clock at the Young Israel of Staten Island and Forest Hill Road in Staten Island, New York. Uh, that's happening today. Tomorrow, the Amit Yomi Yun uh, uh, in the five towns with guest speaker Dr. Shoshana Pupko takes place starting at 9.30 in the morning. Information about that, that's at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst. Information on meetchildren.org, meetchildren.org. The bake sale to benefit the Lone Center, providing physical and emotional support for Lone Soldiers in Israel, uh, happens this coming Thursday and Friday starting at 10 a.m. at Breezy's, 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, in memory of Shlomo Rindenauer. Information, it's uh, 516-316-1902, 516-316-1902. Don't forget the Tish Above service at the Isaiah Peace Wall. I'll be on a flight to Israel, so I will not be able to attend this year. But uh, as murderous Palestinian terror attacks continue in Israel, and as Hamas and Hezbollah stock many thousands of rockets and dig terror tunnels on Israel's border, as the BDS movement cancer continues to spread and anti-Semitic incidents occur in the United States, let us gather together with Rabbi Avi Weiss in a traditional mincha with Torah and all uh, this coming um, Tishabov, August the 1st, 2 p.m., 1st Avenue and 43rd Street, right across from the U.N. at the Isaiah Peace Wall. Bring your talus and tefillin. Again, it's uh, 2 o'clock a week from today at the Isaiah Wall. Information 
888-663-5784. It is always an inspiring service. And for those of you who work in Midtown, it's an opportunity during lunchtime, what would normally be lunch, to go in Davin Mincha at the Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd and 1st Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, we are going to continue with the uh, lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Um, this is part one of uh, Europe and the Jews. Uh, this lecture is entitled The Roman Catholic Church. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture is available at 1-800-499-WEIN, also RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the Roman Catholic Church, a relatively new series from his uh, history collection here at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture uh, in this series of Europe and the Jews has to do with Roman Catholic Europe. A major change in uh, European and world history uh, took place in the 4th century. The Roman Empire is now uh, still dominant, but it has two centers. One is in Rome, and one is in uh, what was then called Byzantium, and later would be called Constantinople, and today is called Istanbul. And uh, that is the uh, division of the Roman Empire. There's an Eastern Roman Empire and a Western Roman Empire. The Romans have a, uh, an emperor by name of Constantine. Now, uh, Christianity is uh, already uh, 250, 300 years old. And uh, because of uh, mainly the work of Paul in the first century, it now uh, became a religion uh, of the non-Jews, not of the Jews. Originally, it started out as a religion for Jews, and the, uh, all of the early uh, disciples were Jews. But uh, that all changed because uh, the Jews uh, refused to accept Christianity. They made, the Christianity made very little headway amongst the Jews. And uh, therefore, uh, Paul especially, but uh, later uh, church fathers as well, it said that the religion is for the non-Jews, for the pagans, and uh, began slowly uh, to attract uh, many, many followers in the Roman Empire because uh, the ideas of paganism began to wane, didn't make sense anymore. And uh, because of that, therefore, Christianity, which was uh, a very unsophisticated easy Judaism. It did not make requirements that Judaism did. There was a great wave of conversion to Judaism as well in the Roman Empire. Thousands of Romans converted to Judaism. But uh, Christianity offered an easy Judaism, no, you know, circum no circumcision, no restrictions on the Sabbath, etc., etc., no kashras, no dietary laws. It required the uh, belief in the, the Christian Savior, and that's about it. Naturally, there was a moral code as well, and the moral code was basically taken from Judaism, almost completely. And uh, this uh, undermined the Roman Empire. 
Christianity undermined the Roman Empire. It appealed to the lower classes. It it appealed to the slave class, which was very large because the Roman Empire was built upon slaves. And so by uh, the year 320, 330 of the Common Era, uh, Christianity was uh, well accepted in large parts of the Roman Empire, even though it had been persecuted and persecuted horribly by the Roman emperors who realized that it was undermining uh, Roman rule. So there was a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine, and he made his base in Byzantium, in, uh, and he renamed it, he built the city again, and he rena- renamed it Constantinople after himself, the city of Constantine, and he converted to Christianity. His mother, Helena, also converted to Christianity. And uh, when they converted to Christianity, they officially made Rome Christian. But uh, in order for it to catch on, so to speak, uh, they uh, retained a great deal of paganism within Christianity. That's especially true of the Eastern Christians, uh, where icons, statues, uh, all of the, all of, uh, which essentially are paganistic things, uh, all were accepted and made part of the religion. And uh, after Constantine died, so his successor went back to paganism. His successor was called Julian the Apostate. But uh, paganism could not hold the line against Christianity. And in the last days of the Roman Empire, it was a Christian empire. Now, the problem with, uh, there were many problems with uh, this change. But one of the ideas of Christianity, which is mentioned in the New Testament, is that uh, it's an exclusive religion. Uh, The New Testament says that the Christian Savior said that no one can come to the Father except through me. So if you're not a Christian, you'll never get to the Father. And if you're not a Christian, by definition, you're doomed. And therefore, the idea was introduced into the world, the same idea that the... uh, that Muhammad would then follow three, uh, uh, rather in the seventh century, uh, of an exclusive religion. It's all or nothing. You're either Christian or you're damned. And Muhammad would say you're either Muslim or you're damned. And uh, that gives rise to the idea of infidels, uh, people that are not of your faith, And what do you do with them? What's your relationship with them? And uh, the major infidels in Europe would be the Jews, who resisted any attempts uh, to uh, convert uh, voluntarily or many times even forcibly to Christianity. So the church had a problem from the beginning. The problem is that Jesus is Jewish, Paul is Jewish, Peter is, everybody's Jewish, and the Jews aren't Christians. And the early church fathers, like Justin Martyr and others, uh, grappled with the problem. 
and they are the ones that really uh, created uh, religious anti-Semitism against the Jews. They wrote terrible things about the Jews. They said because the Jews rejected Christianity, uh, so to speak, they're not worthy of anything. And from that uh, till today, uh, there is this strong strain of anti-Semitism, especially in Roman Catholicism. Now, the Catholic Church has evolved in our time. I hope to discuss that later. But uh, you can't erase 2,000 years of history with uh, one nice compliment. And because of that, therefore, you had uh, the uh, Roman Church, which was the Western Church, based in Rome, with a pope, and you had the Eastern Church based in Constantinople, and the, uh, the Byzantines. Now, most of the Jews in the 4th and 5th centuries lived under the Byzantines, not under the Roman Catholics. The Jewish presence in Europe was rather small, but the Jewish presence in the Middle East uh, was major. And the Byzantine Christians were uh, very, very, not only anti-Semitic, I mean, uh, the Jews were killed, the Jewish religion was persecuted, it could not be observed, all sorts of terrible things happened. To the extent that perhaps the Jewish uh, presence in the Middle East would have been destroyed completely if it would not have been for the rise of Islam in the 7th century, which pushed the Byzantine Christians out of the Middle East. Then we have a different problem out of the Jews with the Muslims. But temporarily, at least, it relieved the pressure of the Christians. Jews started to drift into Europe, uh, not in large numbers, but they spread. They were in Italy, where Rome was. Uh, They came up the Balkans. Uh, They settled in Provence, southern France, and they settled in France itself. Uh, They came to uh, the German Rhineland, and they came to parts of Austria. There was a Jewish presence, and all of this was in what was now Roman Catholic country. Now, the uh, Roman Catholics had this problem with the Jews, what do we do with them? What? Everybody else is converting. All of Europe, all the tribes became Catholic. Ireland, England, France, Germany, uh, they created what was called the Holy Roman Empire, which was the Roman Empire, which was made holy by the fact that they were Catholic. Now, you had a competition between the Pope and between the Emperor of the, Ro- of the Holy Roman Empire. Because the Pope originally was not only a spiritual leader, uh, he was a temporal leader. He had an army. He owned vast swaths of territory. And he claimed that the emperor had to be subservient to him. The emperor uh, disagreed. And you have a constant tension throughout the Middle Ages between the church and the uh, papacy in Rome 
and between the, the temporal powers. And eventually it would lead to the, the Protestant Revolution and to all sorts of other things. But the problem of the Jews remained. What do you do with the Jews? So uh, there, it was faced on a, on a double level. It was faced on a level of practicality. You know, you got uh, 300 Jews that are living in this town. What do you, how do we treat them? And then it had to be faced theologically. How do we explain that the people who uh, created Christianity, so to speak, aren't Christian? And the pagans all became Christians. How do we deal with that? So the church came up with a uh, theological answer uh, called the witness people. Also part of the problem is that the Jews somehow don't disappear. Whoever you turn around, there's a Jew. So even though the Jews are very small in number, uh, but they're ubiquitous. Wherever you go, there's a Jew. So because of that, therefore, uh, the church came up with the idea of the witness people, that the Jews are the witness people. That's based on a Pulsic, because the Christian church adopted the Old Testament, uh, the 24 books of the Tanakh. So in the Novi Yeshayo, it says, Hatem Edai, you are my witnesses, God says. So our interpretation is that we witness uh, uh, God's presence on earth, and through the Torah we uh, advance his civilization, etc. Their interpretation is, you are my witnesses, you, there will, Jews will survive everything because of the fact that they have to witness the return of the Christian Savior, and they're the ones that have to admit that they were wrong. And in order for that to happen, there have to be Jews. So there was an institution existed till our time called the Pope's Jews. In the Vatican, in the, where the Pope was, there, were, there was always an enclave of Jews that were protected by the church so that the rest of the Jews could go to Auschwitz but the Pope objected when the Germans tried to take his Jews. It's the only recorded time that we have that Pope Pius, uh, so to speak, uh, intervened in the roundup of Jews in Italy because he needed those Jews. There always has to be, and by the way, just as a uh, more ironic aside, uh, all of the vendors outside the Vatican that sell the religious artifacts uh, speak Yiddish. <laughs> and it was traditional that the Pope's Jews made a living from that. So you have uh, this uh, theological problem and you have this practical problem. Because of this, uh, the uh, priests on Sunday uh, preached hatred of the Jews. And there were certain uh, times of the year, uh, the times of Lent and Good Friday and Easter, uh, where, uh, and, and uh, December 25th, where, uh, uh, so to speak, it was very dangerous for a Jew to appear on the street at all. There's a custom that Tosfus mentions 
that on the, the night of Christmas Eve, on Nittel, it was called Nittelnacht, uh, they didn't uh, learn Torah. That custom arose because uh, no one could go on the street on that night to come to the Beit Midrash, to the house of study, to learn. So therefore they didn't hold, the only time that they didn't hold classes or learning sessions during the year, so there was a custom not to learn. But it was simply the danger, was simply that the Jews would be uh, assaulted and killed. But it was not on an organized fashion yet. Uh, Medieval Europe was a terrible place to live in. People's lives were short. It was violent. It was primitive. There's a great book by uh, William Manchester called The World Without Fire, which describes life in the Middle Ages. So uh, we don't realize how our lifestyle, even in the last hundred years, how radically it has changed, the comforts that we have that we take for granted. But the Middle Ages was terrible. And uh, Jews were subjected to all sorts of humiliation. Uh, there were Jewish hats that they had to wear, dunce caps. If you look, uh, there are famous Haggadahs uh, uh, for Pesach from uh, illuminated from the 14th, the 13th century. You'll see the pictures of the Jews there. They all have these crazy hats. And they all had to wear badges on their clothing. And Jews were banned from wearing certain colors. Now, in the time of Rashi, for instance, Jews wore brightly colored clothes. The men wore red or maroon, and the women wore blue and yellow. But the church decreed that those colors were forbidden to Jews, and that's how the black suit came into being. Now, Jews are funny. If you make, you know, you make fun of it, so we're going to show you, we're going to wear it, and it's not going to be funny. So therefore, Jews got to hang up with hats. We're going to have hats. You want to make us have hats? We're going to have hats. And you want you say black is no good? We like black. We're going to wear black. And that was a uh, Jewish reaction throughout the ages. It still exists today as well. And uh, there was a lot of problems in Europe because of the fact that, A, it was a feudal system. All the land was owned by noblemen, by the king, etc. And everybody else was a peasant, a serf, a slave. So uh, you had uh, the famous 1% owned uh, 90, uh, ruled over the 99%. But but they, the 1% had a problem because under uh, the rules then, only the firstborn inherited. So you had thousands of unemployed noblemen who were just wandering around. So for sport, they killed people, they had jousting, they had all sorts of things, but uh, they had no gainful occupation. And this became a very serious problem. So uh, Pope Gregory uh, wanted to help solve a lot of problems. One of the problems was that the Jews are living in Europe, 
and the Christian holy places are in the land of Israel, Jerusalem, and that is controlled by the Muslims, and the Muslims are also infidels. When we discussed the Muslims, they, the Muslims came to Europe, they almost took over Europe then by force. Only they were defeated by Charles Martel, the French uh, king, uh, at the gates of Vienna, and they were turned back. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine, the Roman Catholic Church, his topic on this Nine Days Tuesday. Very interesting, right? Very interesting. Great lecture series on the history of the Jews in Europe. 1-800-499-WEIN for information or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We'll go to Rabbi Goldwasser, and then we will uh, head back to our lecture uh, by Rabbi Wine. I thank you for listening in to JM in the AM, 63 degrees, cloudy skies, a high 75, 92 in Yerushalayim. Um, up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missouri at 60 degrees. Here at 63, heading up to only 75, believe it or not. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishmas Aravzev, Nervyosav Alevi, Endless Echonishmas Esther Basar, Nervyosav Alevi. Plus, Rabbi Goldwasser's words being studied this morning in a schus for Rafush Lema from Malka Matel Basara, Malka Matel Basara. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The great Sadiq Reb Levi Yitzchok of Berdichev once said, When a Torah scroll is sewn together, it becomes holy. It's forbidden to erase even one letter. But when it's still in several parts, it's permissible to erase. The letters represent the Neshamas of Klal Yisrael. When united, none of them can be erased. It says in the Pesach and Vayikra, Ushmartem You should observe my decrees, Ves Mishpotai, my laws, Hasher Yasa Oysom Ha'adam, which a man shall carry out, Vechai Bohem, which he shall live by. It's asked, why do we use the Lashon, the language of Ha'adam, man, there are several names for man, Ish, Gever, Enosh. However, the word Adam specifically alludes to the Achtus, the unity in Klal Yisrael. So we should all unite together and gain kapara, or atonement, for each other. The difference is that all the other names for man can be put into Loshan Rabim, or to plural, Ishim, Gvarim, Anoshim. However, the name Adam only appears in the singular form. There is no plural form for it. Hashem's greatest wish is for us all to be Adam, unified, one single unit. The Ramchal, Ramosha Chaim Lutzato says that we each have an individual neshama, but there is a neshama klalis, there is a general neshama that includes all of Klal Yisrael. Sometimes we are judged according to that neshama klolis. An elderly man who had survived the Holocaust recalled his days in the concentration camp. The Germans Yemach Shemam were extremely exact about any incident in camp. There once was a small geneva, a thievery that took place from the office of the SS. The Gestapo immediately lined up all the inmates in front of the barracks and demanded that the guilty party should confess. Without a second's delay, the entire camp shouted, 
We are all guilty. Kulonu Hashemim. If you want, kill us all. The SS was astounded by this show of Achdus and for some unexplained reason stopped the investigation. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you Morning Chizik. Have a nice day. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. It's a JM in the AM presentation on this uh, Tuesday morning. And I thank you all for tuning in and being part of it. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine has been uh, educating us for a long, long time. And this year is no exception. Brilliant series on the history of the Jews in Europe. Right now speaking about the Roman Catholic Church. Our presentation continues here at JM in the AM. But if they would have won that battle, so then all of Europe would have been Muslim. So the Pope wanted to regain the uh, holy places for Christianity, and he wanted somehow to get rid of all of these unemployed knights, give them something to do. So he called, uh, it was a man, Peter the Hermit, other uh, priests, they called for a crusade. The crusade was to liberate the uh, holy places in the land of Israel from Muslim rule and restore them to Christian rule. And they enlisted uh, all of these knights and they enlisted peasants, etc. Everybody was going to go. Now the Pope promised anybody that went that all their sins would be forgiven. This was a time in the world when people believed that hell was real and were afraid of it. And the church held the key to saving them from hell. The church could absolve a person of, it, of one's sins. So anybody that went on the crusade would gain absolution. So that was a, a big plus. And they also said, you know, on the way, you know, there'll be plenty of booty and plunder. You'll take whatever you can. And people had this fanciful idea that in the land of Israel, there, you know, there are diamonds on the street. It's all... Uh, we're going on a fun joy, a fun and joy trip. Now, the Crusaders on the way, and you were all going by foot, remember. You, you got to walk across Europe, and then you got to walk across Turkey and walk across Syria to come to the land of Israel. Most of them never made it. But... On the way, they said to themselves, why do we have to go all the way to the Middle East to to conquer the infidels? We got infidels here. The Jews are here. And in the 11th century, the end in 1096, uh, the the Crusaders under Godfrey of Bouillon uh, sacked many Jewish towns, uh, Jewish communities, killed so in, in, in terms of numbers, it's uh, 10 minutes at Auschwitz. But at that time, relative to the population of Europe and the population of the Jews in Europe, it was a major tragedy. And for instance, the uh, tri-city of uh, Spires, Worms, and Mainz, which had uh, about a few hundred Jewish families, probably 600 Jewish families in total, 
was completely destroyed and they were killed and uh, it was the first time we have recorded in Jewish history uh, that parents killed their own children rather than allow them to fall into Christian hands and be converted and uh, there was the first crusade there was the second crusade there was the third crusade there was a children's crusade there was a pauper's crusade and the first crusade was successful it drove the, the, the Muslims out and they established the Latin kingdom here in Israel you can see remnants of it all over the country the crusader fortresses but eventually the crusaders could not hold on to the country because the Europeans did not move here uh, the crusaders converted forcibly much many of the Arab population that's how you have Arab Christians until today but the Europeans did not come here and eventually the crusaders wilted on the vine and there was a great deal of internal uh, warring amongst themselves etc etc so that within 200 years the crusader kingdom ended but here you had for the first time organized slaughter of Jews merely because of the fact they were Jews and under religious auspices that it was a religious act to kill Jews now when you uh, combine murder with religion you really have a lethal mix it's very volatile as we are witness to what goes on in our world today it becomes a, uh, an act of holiness to, to destroy people one of the interesting things that, uh, is that the church uh, needed Jews as well originally for instance just as an example uh, you needed people that uh, were not loyal to one country in other words the French when they wanted to deal with Austria uh, so uh, the Austrians didn't trust the French people and the French people didn't trust the Austrian people but the Jews who were not loyal to France or to Austria they were so to speak international people so uh, we find already the church uses Jews uh, for diplomacy for sending messages for creating commerce because of the fact that they can cross all lines and not only that the Jews uh, wherever you go in the world there's a Jew so they have all the connections and one of Chaucer's uh, uh, writings he says as long as Solomon of London has a cousin Joshua in Baghdad there will be salt in England and so the Jews were international merchants before the idea of international merchants uh, so to speak was formalized the church needed Jews because uh, according to church law originally it's been amended many times but originally the church adopted the same restrictions on taking interest that existed in the Torah so in the Torah a private Jew cannot take interest from another Jew 
for a loan. But uh, under uh, expanding commerce, credit is necessary. There's no way to do it without credit, without borrowing, without all of that. The church never had the uh, halachic flexibility to create a heteriska, to create any of the uh, halachic principles which allow us to do business. So, but they understood there was a concept in the Talmud that a Jew, if there is a non-Jew in the middle, so a Jew can lend money to another Jew, but he doesn't do it directly. He does it. He has a non-Jew in the middle. So let's say uh, he has. Uh, he wants to lend. Ruvain wants to lend Shimon a thousand shekel, but he wants to take interest. So what he does is he gets a hold of Ivan or somebody in the middle, and he says, "Here is twelve hundred shekel." You lend a thousand shekel to Shimon, and you'll collect from him uh, sixteen or seventeen hundred shekel. You give me four hundred shekel, and you'll keep another hundred, and that's the deal. Which in the Talmud becomes a loophole in the situation. Well, the church took that and turned it on its head. They said the a Christian wants to lend money to another Christian. But he can't take interest because that's usury. It's forbidden. So we'll put a Jew in the middle. And the Christian will lend money, give money to the Jew. The Jew in turn will lend the money to another Christian. And the Jew has the responsibility of collecting the money. And uh, that's how it will go. And that is how Jews got into the money lending business. They were forced into it by the church because that was the only way that the wheels of commerce could work. And Jews became famous throughout Europe as money lenders. Later, they became bankers, which is a sophisticated term for lending money. And uh, so the church needed Jews because of all of these types of restrictions. But on the other hand, the church preached against the Jews. So you constantly had this tension. So sometimes the church protected the Jews. The famous instance of Rashi, who uh, the town of Troyes, where Rashi lived, was protected during the first crusade because the bishop was a friend of Rashi. And you have other towns, as I mentioned, spires, worms, etc., where everybody was killed. So it depended how, you know, on all sorts of personal and strange uh, circumstances. And uh, in the 14th century, which is uh, until our time was the worst century in human history, we have surpassed it. The 20th was worse and the 21st is well on the way to breaking that record. But in the 14th century, there was the great plague in Europe. The bubonic plague brought by uh, fleas that lived in the skin of rats, and the rats came with the ships, and the ships came from Asia, and they brought the plague with them, and there was no immunity. And the reason there's no bubonic plague today 
in most of the world is because we have developed an immunity because there's no known cure for it and the plague destroyed over a third of the European population entire cities disappeared the forests regained all of the agricultural land she has a book Barbara Tuckman called A Distant Mirror on the 14th century it's the most horrid century imaginable and now the people in the 14th century had no idea how, why the plague came there was no idea of communicable diseases or viruses or any of that and uh, when you have such a plague you need a scapegoat somebody's fault and the church preached had preached always that the Jews were vermin that they were a virus uh, Hitler said the Nazis said that uh, openly it's Arab propaganda today as well Jews infect the society they live in they're carriers of diseases when the HIV uh, epidemic raged in Africa so many of the leaders said that the Jews sent it there like we're in charge of the HIV so that was an idea and therefore there now arose a tremendous wave of pogroms the church also uh, encouraged the idea that uh, somehow uh, if your country is holy it cannot have infidels in your country this was an idea that permeated Christian Europe so therefore uh, the Jews were expelled from England in the 1200s they were expelled from France because you wanted that your land should be holy how could it be holy if you have infidels and that's why the Jewish population in Europe constantly was on the move eventually most of the Jews of Europe ended up in Eastern Europe in Poland and the Baltic states and Hungary and Romania and that area because they were expelled from the other areas and it wasn't until after the French Revolution that Jews were allowed to come back to France and England had to pass in the 19th century in the 1800s the Israeli put through parliament the Jew bill that's what it was called that allowed Jews to legally live in England though Jews had lived illegally there for about 200 years already so you had expulsions but all of this doesn't solve quote the Jewish problem unquote because the Jews still are ubiquitous even if you expel them there's a few of them around and you need them and they somehow are doing business you know, Jews for instance uh, they became uh, diamond merchants precious stones why? because it's easy to take with you you can't own real estate in France or in England but if you have a pocket full of diamonds you can go anywhere and that became a Jewish profession just as money lending was a Jewish profession another Jewish profession was tax farming which I discussed with you last week was that the government sold the right to collect taxes to somebody let's say you know it exists in the United States today 
you can buy uh, real estate tax uh, from the local authority, and then you collect the tax. Yeah, you, you give the government money in advance, naturally you get a discount, and then if you collect the taxes, you make money. Jews were very, very uh, noticeable in tax farming. None of this is a type of a profession that makes you popular with the populace. Nobody likes the tax collector. Nobody likes the banker. Those are not professions that people like. Jews also were in the liquor business. The church was uh, opposed to alcohol, even though most of the church was alcoholic. And Jews, therefore, were in the alcohol business. Rashi was a vintner, made wine. So we're not talking about making Kiddush wine here. He makes wine for the non-Jewish world. And again, uh, that wasn't such a popular thing because of the fact that it led to alcoholism and all sorts of other ills. And again, the Jew was held responsible. In the drive to make Europe, which is what the church wanted to do, to make Europe Judenrein, so Spain was a big exception. Was a tremendous Jewish population in Spain. They had come across with the Muslims in the seventh century. They were in a country 800 years. They were wealthy. They were numerous. They were powerful. And uh, so then, uh, what do you do with them? And the Christian reconquest of Spain, which began in the eleventh century, eventually brought about. A tremendous amount of religious fanaticism in the Spanish Catholic world. More than that was encouraged by the Pope even. And in 1391, a hundred years before the expulsion from Spain, there was an enormous pogrom in Spain. Thousands of Jews were slaughtered. Tens of thousands of Jews were forcibly converted. And then Isaac of Barbanel, his father and grandfather, were forcibly converted to Christianity. Before they converted, they sent their children to Portugal, where you could still be raised as Jews. Over now, the church had another problem. All these conversos, all these Jews that converted to Catholicism, the church felt that rightly so, they didn't mean it. They're not really Christian. They just did it pro forma. And therefore the church uh, instituted what was called the Holy Order of the Inquisition. The Inquisition was not against Jews who were Jews. The Inquisition was against Jews who had converted to Christianity, but still somehow practiced Judaism or retained their Jewish Roots, identity, and friends. That's what the Inquisition came to root out. And many of the leaders of the Inquisition were themselves of Jewish descent. Torquemada, the leader of the Inquisition, the most notorious evil person, was descended from Jews. And you have throughout Europe today, literally millions of people who are descended from Jews.
but are not Jewish. And many times they are the ones that are most inimical to Jews. It's estimated that 80% of the Spanish population today has some sort of Jewish roots. The famous story with Francisco Franco, the Spanish general who headed Spain in the Second World War. So he was a very wily person. Even though he was on the side of Hitler, he never joined Hitler, he never joined the Axis, he stayed neutral, he played both sides. So there were 30,000 Jews that escaped to Spain in the Second World War. And Franco did not send one of them back, despite repeated uh, demands by the Germans to send the Jews back so that they could kill them. Switzerland sent back. Sweden sent back. France destroyed its Jewish community. Franco, the fascist, he didn't send back. And when he was asked why, he said, under the Nuremberg laws, I'm probably also Jewish. Franco is a uh, Jewish name amongst conversos. There are certain names that are Jewish. And he was descended from Jews. And uh, so he didn't want to send them back. Other people uh, were not so magnanimous. So you had this Inquisition, and eventually, uh, when Ferdinand and Isabella united Spain under their rule, so she was a fanatical Roman Catholic, and she she had the uh, vision uh, that Spain could never be great as long as it had Jews there. It was just the opposite. As long as it had Jews, it was great. In the next century, it would be defeated, the Spanish Armada, it would lose its colonies, it would become a second-rate country. But she was convinced, and uh, Ferdinand was a weak uh, husband, there are such things. And uh, so therefore, uh, they uh, promulgated this uh, decree of expulsion, and uh, it applied to maybe five, six hundred thousand Jews in the Iberian Peninsula between Spain and Portugal. Half the Jews left, half the Jews converted. And this was a blow. Uh, After the destruction of the temple, it was the biggest blow to Judaism until until our time, until the Holocaust. Wiped out. 800 years in Spain, all gone. Now what happened was that uh, the church now had other problems. We're going to discuss it uh, next time. Uh, There was a Protestant revolution. There was a revolution against the church within Christianity. A revolution against the Pope. It began with Henry VIII, uh, who wanted uh, a divorce, and the Pope... uh, didn't give him the annulment he wanted, so he made his own religion. But it was uh, you couldn't hold back the ideas because the, pro- the theological and practical and uh, diplomatic problems of the church were so many that there was no way to avoid a reaction against it. So the church now became busy 
with the Protestants. And we're going to talk next time about Protestant Europe. But because the Roman Catholic Church became busy with the Protestants, they became less busy with the Jews. Because now they had their own infidels. Now, in a religious war, and for instance, the the war uh, between the Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church was called the Thirty Years' War, consumed hundreds of thousands of lives. So in a religious war, uh, a lot of things slipped through the cracks. And the Jews uh, were able somehow to play play both sides of the coin because they were infidels to both. But uh, they were necessary again because the Jews could talk to the Protestants when the Catholics could not. And the Jews could talk to the Catholics when the Protestants could not. And you had these institutions of what was called the court Jews. Every king had Jews in his court, and they represented, so to speak, Jewish interests, but they really represented the interests of the king vis-a-vis other Christian countries. This gave individual Jews a great deal of power and a great deal of influence. And uh, because of that, uh, the populace saw the Jews as somehow controlling things, even though we're talking about one Jew or two Jews or three Jews, and all the rest of the Jews have nothing and are impoverished. All of this plays into uh, this idea uh, that the, the Jews are the problem, which is what the church constantly promulgated. In 1899, Theodore Herzl went to visit the Pope Leo, and he, Herzl uh, was then selling this idea of a Jewish homeland, a Jewish national homeland, especially in the land of Israel. And the Pope told him the only solution to the Jewish problem is that everyone should convert to Catholicism. And the church uh, doctrinally was always opposed to Zionism. Uh, and uh, until recently it had no diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. Because the state of Israel is a problem to the church. It's a theological problem. It's not supposed to happen. The Jews are supposed to remain, because of their rejection of Christianity, they're supposed to remain subservient, you know, etc. That's part of the problem with Europe today. It's the success of the Jewish people, the success of the state of Israel, that turns Europe against us. Because you're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to win the wars. You're not supposed to, to, uh, to export to the whole world. So we have to label you so that you can't sell. Because it's not supposed to be. It's not the script. And uh, since our government is always a secular government, so it never takes religion into account. Even though everything that is going on now is purely because of religion. Whether you want to call it that way or not. And much of what goes on of the European anti-Israel, anti-Jewish is only religion. It's a continuation of the 2,000 years old problem. 
and as someone so famously said it, uh, that the Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. So uh, the church has uh, a very mixed record regarding the Holocaust. So you had uh, Pope uh, John Paul, who was a cardinal in Poland and a priest in Poland, who gave back the Jewish children that were in his monasteries. And you had the Pope who didn't give back anybody. And Herzog went to see him. He gave him a list of 10,000 Jewish children that had been sequestered in Catholic institutions by their parents. And the Pope, and he said, he gave him 10,000 names. And the Pope told him, he said, uh, I cannot give you back even one of them because everyone that entered a Catholic institution was immediately baptized. And someone who was baptized in the church cannot be given to be raised in a different faith, which is good Catholic theology till today. And, uh, all of that complicates the situation. Uh, the church has declined greatly in Europe in our time. Most, uh, probably most of Europe is uh, not very religious and not very Christian. But uh, the influence of uh, this history of anti-Semitism, this religious anti-Semitism, of the fact that the Jews somehow don't belong, that they're not entitled to belong, and that they have to be dealt with differently. That uh, atmosphere, uh, that type of attitude still prevails, and it fuels much of what goes on. And uh, the, uh, the attempts of the church to deal with uh, the Jews in Europe uh, is almost feeble because of the fact that they would have to somehow rewrite everything that they have written in the past. They have to erase all of their books. They have to take out all of the terrible things that were written about us. So the, uh, the attitudes of the popes uh, plays a great role but it does not move basically the church itself because of this idea of infidels and this idea of exclusive, exclusive religion that you cannot get to the father except through the son all of that prevents any sort of easy solution uh, to these types of problems now the Jews in Europe in Christian Europe uh, survived but barely and uh, the ideas of uh, Roman Catholicism vis-a-vis the Jews still exist here and today in Israel as well you know um, much of the church activity here is uh, they promised that they would not uh, be missionaries here but uh, the goal of the church still is to make the world 100% Christian and that influences everything that occurs and that influences everything that occurs here in Israel as well so if we bear that in mind 
uh, we shouldn't be nervous every time something happens. Uh, part of the problem is we think that uh, you know we're a new generation and new things are happening to us. These are all old, very old stories, and it's an old competition, so to speak. And uh, we uh, we have not only persevered, but we have triumphed. And because of that, therefore, uh, we still have problems. So that's the choice that we have. I want to thank you all for coming. I hope to see you next Saturday night. Jam in the AMRA Barrel Wine, an amazing series on Europe and the Jews. This uh, lecture of the Roman Catholic Church as we explore uh, that part of our uh, history. Um, in this case, the relationship with the Roman Catholic Church in this uh, relatively new series from Rabbi Wine. Uh, that has really been well-received by our audience this week, and it's much appreciated. Tuesday morning, it is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard and listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web, at com on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. One of our favorites is with us live via telephone. He is the uh, co-founder and, of course, the leader of Nefesh Benefesh. They, have, they, quite obviously, are very, very busy this summer, like every summer. Rabbi Yehoshua Josh Fass is with us live via telephone from Israel. Rabbi Fass, Baruch Haba, welcome back to JM in the AM. Baruch thank you so much, Nachum. I greatly appreciate it. We'll talk about the busy summer and how we look forward to, uh, again, escorting and being part of uh, the big August flight, which is going to be amazing, no doubt. Uh, but first, Rabbi Fass, um, you are somebody who is... Uh, living in Israel and an observer of the Jewish scene both there and around the world. I will say that uh, as, as, as difficult as this might sound to some people, because I don't want to minimize those who suffer and are victims of other attacks, when these terror attacks by the enemy take place on a Friday night in someone's home, it seems to pierce the collective Jewish heart around the world even more strongly than a quote-unquote, and I hate saying this, regular terror attack. Uh, what is it like there, m- much more so on the spot, when you hear the news of what happened on Leil Shabbat? Well, it, it, it's beyond tragic, and it, it pierces one's heart and soul. And I, I, don't, I don't know why uh, a Shabbat setting is more tragic than another another uh, terrorist activity. Maybe it's the vulnerability. Maybe it's the serenity. Maybe it's just uh, being in one's home, thinking that you're protected, and having someone come in and, and literally slaughter a family. It, 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 um, it shakes you to the core. It really shakes you to the core. My niece was actually in a for for Shabbat, and just um, traumatized from, from, that, from that Shabbat experience. And it just it it's it's traumatizing for all of Am Yisrael, not just for those yeah. who live in Israel, yeah. because it 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 brings back a lot of trauma and past trauma, uh, past terrorist activity, and even as 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 someone was mentioning, this is you know brings us back to you know to World War Two of hiding out in attics and hiding away from persecution. This is not what it's all. This is not what. Uh, this redemption is supposed to be about, and and I think that the vulnerability, the the post-traumatic syndrome, the referencing to past tragedies, um, it it, uh, it shakes one. It, it uh, 
makes us feel vulnerable. And uh, on top of that, there's the, the mourning for the family. Yeah. And just and just taking in trying to understand the trajectory of this family, the trauma of the family. You know, you spend a, you spend a lot of time with Israeli government officials, and we know that the biggest responsibility of any government is to protect its people. Obviously, um, and today, in fact, you were in the Knesset, uh, and it's po- and it's possible that this episode came up at some point uh, as people you know discuss it days afterwards. Um, what's your impression of the way uh, our leadership in Israel uh, takes these episodes? We, we'd have to assume, I'd have to assume they take it obviously very, very seriously. Um, but you know, how, how do you sometimes see them react to these types of things that uh, unfortunately go on uh, in the state of Israel? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was in the Knesset today. There was uh, an intimate setting of of welcoming Ambassador David Freeman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, in the Knesset, and it was just really a small room. And they had a, a rotating visitation of of a bunch of Knesset members. There were around three dozen Knesset members that came in and out and listened to Ambassador Freeman, and also gave him blessings and brachot and success wishes. And it was interesting. You can see on the faces of uh, uh, of the ministers and and the Knesset members who hasn't slept for days <laughs> either either because of the back the backroom um security meetings or what was happening in Jordan or just the emotional toll it's taken and I know some of them personally and and even speaking to them it's just it's it takes a toll uh, on on one's soul and there are others who are much more pragmatic, and and this is unfortunately the the that the narrative of the Jewish people, and yeah. and and they take a more pragmatic uh, approach to what needs to be done, and move this to that, and that has to happen, and and, and it's uh, it's a necessity, I guess. I think if you're too emotionally uh, invested, maybe you can't make decisions clearly, but um, you would hope, and 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 for a majority of them, you see it, you witness that there's a lot of emotional investment. And told that it takes. Yeah, because we sit from thousands of miles away and question decisions that the government makes, and you know, wonder why they cave in on certain things, and uh, you know, and and don't follow the what we think uh, you know is the instinctive way of dealing with a situation when the enemy is rearing its ugly head. Listen, I'm I'm two inches away from the picture, and I don't understand certain decisions <laughs> that make. I, I I think there needs to be a collective um, uh, dosage of humility. Uh, the, what we see and what's reported is just a tip of the iceberg, and uh, the complexities of decisions uh, are, are are great. Um, so uh, as we just we can voice our anger and voice our disappointment and raise our hands in disbelief of certain actions, but there has to be peppered with a sense of a bit of humility that we don't know the whole picture. Yeah. And uh, I uh, and I'm not jealous of those who have to ha- look at all the variables and make these decisions when life and death is at stake. Everybody, Yeshua fast nefesh benefesh. Um, speaking of David Friedman. And I ask this only because even before he was ambassador, he was a pretty influential uh, member of Jewish leadership, etc. Has he ever been on a Nefesh Benefesh flight from New York to Tel Aviv? He has not been on a Nefesh Benefesh flight. We um, uh, we might uh, see him soon oh. at, at, an, at an event, but he has not yet 
uh, experience in FH flight. There's been interest, but uh, we have not yet actualized that. All right, that would be cool. That would be nice. It would be cool. Yeah. yeah. Nachum, you're on the August flight, right? I'm on the August flight. Looking, okay. Looking so forward you to might, it. You might be able to enjoy him from up close. Now, I, I don't even know, you know to what degree you've been informed about this because uh, you, know, you have much more important things to deal with than the content of our show. Uh, but uh, a, an executive decision has been made. That, that we are going to actually do our entire three-hour jam in the AM from that flight. We've experimented in the past and have done portions of the show from the flight, but uh, you're going to see a very wiped-out Nahum Siegel after a three-hour presentation on the upcoming Nefesh Benefesh charter flight. First of all, I heard rumors. Oh, you did hear so rumors. So I like you, I like you <laughs> confirming that. And second of all, I cannot imagine an Alchem Siegel who is wiped out. You have uh, endless, boundless amount of energy. So I, I don't think a three-hour live, turbulence-filled um, uh, flight is going to uh, oh, and by the way, on Nachum Siegel. And by the way, let's get this out of the way right now. If the ambassador is on the flight... None of this, the ambassador's resting can't be disturbed. You get him on the show, all right? Simple as that. He will not be on the plate, I can tell you right oh, now. That so you have three hours that you don't have to even think of. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so that's out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, all oh, right, the big flight is coming up. It is amazing to uh, consider the the people. You know, I thought about this the other day as, as we're talking about the uh, terrorist attack Friday night. It is, it is amazing to me, and maybe it's just, you know, we can uh, explain it as human nature in some way. It is amazing to me how episodes like that encourage young people to go and fight for the Israel Defense Forces. And I would bet yeah. that if we would speak to, I don't know, any of the, uh, or most of the, what is it, 100 or close to 100 soldiers or more yeah. that are part yeah. of that flight in August, I would bet there was an episode, a specific incident uh, that has occurred that really put them over the top in terms of the desire to serve in the IDF. You've probably heard a lot of those stories over the years. Yeah, absolutely. It galvanizes this, uh, or is, it acts as an impetus for individuals to want to fight for the Jewish people, be not on the sidelines, uh, help, uh, you know, be in this incredibly blessed opportunity in history to have a, a Jewish land, a Jewish government, a Jewish army. And uh, they view it as very much a merit and a blessing to be part of it. And there's always uh, something in their short history that sparked this interest or was the impetus for them to connect to this idea. And it's fascinating to hear story after story. I love reading the essays that these young Olim write for their interest in making Aliyah. And you'll see it on the plane. I mean, half the plane is uh, our lone soldiers. So just walking through just the first section of the economy is this all packed of, of Chayilim Bodedim. So you just go row by row and you hear story after story, and it's just incredible. Also, the diversity of the soldiers from where they're coming from and their religious backgrounds and just guys and girls. It's just remarkable. That's really fascinating to listen. Well, that's one of the things we always point out, the uh, diversity when it comes to gender, geography, religious affiliation. And I wonder when you started Nefesh Benefesh, if you thought that it could get typecasted, if you thought at the beginning we got to be careful, we don't want to be known as a, you know, what you know, fill in the blank organization, and you have to keep you know everybody in the Jewish world in North America, you know, open to to making Aliyah with you. After all, you want it to be the you know the resource, the conduit for people to move to Israel. Did, were you, did you ever fear at the beginning that you know we got to be careful not to take a certain direction to stay open to everybody? It's an ongoing um, consciousness, an ongoing sensitivity. I, uh, 
people in the beginning saw me as an Orthodox rabbi. There was always this uh, assumption that Orthodox Jews make Aliyah no one else, and very much wanted to show that the entire spectrum of Jewry do make Aliyah, and that the entire spectrum of Jewry have an address within Nefesh. And uh, it took us a few years for people to feel sensitive enough to realize that, yes, we are open to everyone, and we, we are the conduits for, for everyone to move to Israel. And even though there's an Orthodox rabbi here and there's an Orthodox individuals, the, the entire staff very much represents all Jews, and we understand the fears, wants, concerns, needs of every Jew. Um, and we, programming, ongoing programming, both in the States and also in Israel, has to constantly be sensitive to that. To that. You can't just throw... Uh, a Friday, you know, a Shabbos, Kiddush, and a Shir right. for for young singles in Yushalayim and feel that you fulfilled your obligation of programming for that Shabbat. You have to realize there's a diversity of Jews that come to Israel, and they need different things, and they need to be integrated and find, acclimate and find their communities and and, and get the services that they need. So it's it's a constant, constant sensitivity on our behalf. Even the name of the organization, it must have been a... Uh great debate if it should be in hebrew may not appeal to everybody it, 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 there was, unfortunately there was no real thought put into it <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, 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 in, in retrospect that would have done a lot of things differently no the, the, the nefesh benefesh came from my emotive experience of wanting to do something for my for my cousin who was naftali lanskron who was killed in the beginning of the second intifada and i wanted to to show that that we were going to fight terrorism with a sense of hope and optimism and almost that i was omid benefesh Show, that my nefesh will stand in his nefesh, if that's even possible, of passing on the baton to fight negativity and darkness and terrorism with a sense of rebirth and building and, and moving forward. And that's where it came from. It was purely an emotive, spontaneous, uh, it was within days of, of, the, of the tragedy, uh, I, I filled out the papers for, for the nonprofit status. In, besides people not being able to pronounce it, besides for it being in <laughs> Hebrew, besides it having nothing to do with Aliyah, <laughs> um, um, uh, it's 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 been around for 15 years, so I guess now it's, it has its staying power. Yeah, so, but uh, somehow it worked. <laughs> it worked. It's like Coca-Cola. What does that mean? You know, it's you have a branding, and if you brand it enough and has multiple impressions, and it's supposed to equal something, it equals something. But in retrospect, I would have. Uh, <laughs> that is interesting. Herbie Fast is with us. Um, all right, uh, you'll hear a lot about this, everybody, as we fly to Israel with Nevis Benefish in just a couple of weeks. And get ready for the big charter flight from JFK to Tel Aviv's Ben Gurion Airport. Uh, it is a very, very uplifting experience. And uh, who knows? You may find yourself on the Nefesh Benefesh website after hearing us in the air on that historic flight. All of their flights are historic. Uh, information nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il. Not too early to uh, get your uh, applications in, no matter when you want to go, winter, summer, etc. And of course, you can contact them at 866. 866- for Aliyah, eight six six four Aliyah. Rabbi Fast, before I let you go, there are too many people in this audience who care about you and would be shocked if I didn't address uh, a specific issue. Um, uh, everybody out there wants to just make sure that rabbinic authorities in Israel are treating you the way you should be treated. Are you going? Are you getting along fine with everybody over there? Yeah. <laughs> See, uh, when I woke up Sunday morning after this. Uh when my Google alert 
posted a blacklist at my name, I knew something was off because I have a, a remarkable relationship with, with, with the rabbinate, with the chief rabbi's office. I also have written scores of, of proof of Judaisms, and I've actually affirmed other rabbis as well and been in between just to clarify certain statuses of other rabbis for, for the, and other documents for the chief rabbinate. So I knew something was, was off. And uh, even though people were bombarding me for comment, I really just wanted to check with, with the chief rabbi's office before making any comment publicly. And literally within an hour, coming into the office, I called. I, I was able to talk to everyone there. Uh, tremendous, um, genuine apologies and uh, wanted to rectify whatever situation was. They're still trying to get to the bottom of it. What did that list mean? Um, uh, what does it reflect? Um, and who is this person and why your names were included on it. To the best of my knowledge, it was just, and that's what the title of that page was, it was a list of documents from around the world that were questionable in 2016. Now, questionable does not mean rabbinic status. Questionable means that many times you write documents, and it's happened to me personally, sometimes the dates are incorrect, sometimes the names are incorrect, sometimes the stationery is off-centered, sometimes the signature or the stamp on the signature is off, and they ask you to redo it. So any list of any document from around the world, from multiple countries, that was questionable in 2016 was put on this list. I don't know how it was sold to the press as a blacklist or sensationalized as being uh, the chief rabbinate looking into people's uh, um, rabbinic status, but uh, it got out of control. And uh, parties recognized that it got out of control, and within hours, I received a written apology. I was uh, next day invited by Rav Lau himself, the chief rabbi of Israel, to his to his office to have a personal apology, and and uh, and I've been put in a in a uh, interesting position now of of because they are so apologetic in this interesting position of helping um, the rabbinate chart a new strategy of how documents are reviewed and. God forbid for the, any of this misunderstanding to ever happen again, and also to help other rabbis um, overseas in multiple countries um, uh, rectify the situation for them for themselves. So, so some good has um, come from this episode. A little lemonade, right. <laughs> uh, not to say that the f- first few, you know, day right. or two was uh, not uncomfortable, right. um, but uh, but thank God, uh, you know. Uh, some good came out of it, and hopefully good will continue to come from it. Well, we just want to make sure you're treated with the respect that you uh, so rightfully deserve. So, Baruch Hashem. Thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. Uh, looking forward you. to seeing you soon and easy fast. Uh, I, I Thank l- you. Let's hope we reunite in Jerusalem very soon, like the, uh, like the plan uh, that we have to uh, escort the plane, Bezrat Hashem, or be on the plane uh, in, the, um, uh, in the upcoming well, you- August charter. Reunite is a great word to use during the nine days. We should all be united as an Amichad in Eretz Yisrael, and we should have uh, this should be our last Tisha B'Av if we even needed this Tisha B'Av in a few days from now, and just we should uh, continue to see Shalom and Gula in our lives. Amen. God bless you, Rabbi Fast. Be well. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Nachum. Rabbi Yoshua Fast, co-founder Nefesh Benefesh, will be there. August flight, of course. Tune in. Make sure to be listening. You'll be you will be inspired, I can tell you that much. You will be inspired. And um, we are looking forward to really an amazing journey, as all of our Nefesh Benefesh journeys are absolutely amazing. Check out our community calendar before we continue with Rabbi Wine. 
and his lecture series on Europe and the Jews. Actually, it's the last lecture of part one of Europe and the Jews that we're going to be going to in a moment. I want to remind you that the documentary Hidden is being shown in a variety of places. Um, tonight in Flatbush at the Young Israel of Avenue K, 2818 Avenue K at 8 p.m. And in Farakaway tonight at 8 p.m. at the White Shul, Hidden, projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org. Uh, then we go to tomorrow in Borough Park. The ladies will be at Terrace Golda on 50th Street at 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. The men will be at Lipschitz Hall on 14th Avenue at 8 o'clock. That's in Borough Park tomorrow night. In Teaneck this coming Saturday night at Congregation B'nai Yashurin on West Englewood Avenue beginning at 10 p.m. Projectwitness.org, 718-WITNESS. Tonight, the Jewish Theater of New York has the debate between Tuvia Tenenbaum and Peter Beinart. That's tonight. Uh, 8 p.m. at the Triad Theater on West 72nd Street. Go to the JewishTheater.com. Is it the Jewish Theater? Um, give me a second. JewishTheater.org. JewishTheater.org for information. Nahama Comfort has an evening of remembrance, comfort, and renewal happening tonight with the Seum at 645 at the Teaneck Jewish Center, 70 Sterling Place in Teaneck, New Jersey. Information, NahamaComfort.com. NahamaComfort.com. Our friends that I meet, the Golda Meir chapter in Staten Island, they have their day of learning, their Yom Iyun today from 10 a.m. until 1.30 at the Young Israel of Staten Island. Andy Goldsmith, I meet's executive vice president, Dr. Smadar Rosenswag, Dr. Yael Landman-Wormuth will all be speaking. That's today. Amitchildren.org for information on that. Tomorrow, Amit is at the Sephardic Temple with the Dr. Shoshana Pupko speaking, 9.30 in the morning on their Yom Iyun in the five towns. Again, it's Amitchildren.org. Amitchildren.org. The bake sale for the Lone Soldiers Center in memory of Shlomo Ridenauer happens tomorrow. It happens Thursday and Friday starting at 10 a.m. Thursday and Friday starting at 10 a.m. at Breezy's 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. The bake sale to support the Lone Soldiers Center. Thursday and Friday, 10 a.m. It starts. Check it out. Uh, get ready to uh, to buy some great baked goods. And don't forget Tishabov. Tishabov at the uh, Isaiah Wall. Tishabov at the Isaiah Wall. 2 p.m. Mincha. Bring your Tollison's fillin'. 43rd Street, First Avenue in New York City. A very inspiring and um, effective way to spend your Tishabov afternoon. 2 p.m. Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd Street, First Avenue in New York City. For Mincha, bring your Tollison's fillin' and participate. Tomorrow at 8 a.m which is the day that it was delivered, the 3rd of Av, my father's Shloshim eulogy for the Lubavitcher Rebbe from 1994. We'll do that tomorrow, 8 a.m. right here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on the, uh, or final lecture in part one of the Jews in Europe is about Protestant Europe. Rabbi Beryl Wine, with his brilliant lectures, with us now in our nine days format at JM in the AM. But tonight's topic is... Uh the uh, Protestant Europe and its effect on the Jews. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, was pretty much under siege uh, for a few hundred years by heresies, different ideas uh, that contradicted Catholic doctrine. And uh, the institution of the Holy Office of the Inquisition which was meant to uproot uh, these types of doctrines as well as to make certain that those who converted to Catholicism, especially the Jews, 
uh, did not revert back to Judaism. This inquisition was really uh, an act of desperation by the church because uh, it was an admission that, so to speak, the church could not win the war of ideas and therefore they were going to win it by killing and torturing people. In the uh, 14th century, uh, the church had, for a period of time, three popes at one time. It was called the Great Schism or uh, the Babylonian Exile. It came about because the French king uh, was very uh, disappointed in the actions of the Italian pope. And therefore, he decided that he was going to appoint the French pope. And the seat of the French pope was in Avignon in Provence. If you go to Provence today, to Avignon, you can see the great papal palace there. And for 70 years, there was a pope in Rome, and there was a pope in, there was a pope in Avignon as well. Each one naturally excommunicated the other one. So in heaven, they would have a difficult time sorting the matter out. Uh, there was a period of time when the cardinals got together and they said, enough of this, we're going to get a third pope, a compromise pope. And the other popes agreed that they would resign. But uh, when each of the three popes got the job, then nobody resigned. So you had this great schism in the church. It lasted 70 years. That's why it was called the Babylonian exile. And uh, it weakened the church, as you can imagine, profoundly. As any dispute within a religious community uh, weakens that community. After that, uh, you had other uh, types of schisms, uh, which the church always put down by burning the heretics at the stake. If you go to Prague, in the central square of Prague, there's the memorial to Hus, who was burned by the church for having heretic ideas. Uh, heresies abounded. Uh, and because of that, therefore, the church felt very threatened. The greatest heresy was the Jews. Uh, the Jewish heresy was the primary heresy. It was the main uh, heresy that denied everything about Christianity. And yet the Jews lived in the midst of Catholic Europe, Christian Europe, and uh, somehow the church had to contend with that. And uh, it wavered between uh, forced conversions, pogroms, coming to some sort of accommodation with the Jews. But uh, the problem never was solved. Uh, just as in our time, it has also never been solved. And uh, because of that, therefore, uh, uh, this led to a, a very uncomfortable relationship. Now, the uh, great crisis of the Catholic Church was about to come. And that first came in the form of the Renaissance. 
and the Renaissance was uh, a uh, an idea basically in Italy but it spread throughout Europe of uh, restoring uh, the culture that existed in the time of the Greeks and the Romans uh, it emphasized art and music uh, architecture and most importantly it opened the door to science now the Catholic Church unlike Judaism the Catholic Church married itself to Aristotelian not just Aristotelian philosophy but to Aristotelian science and uh, it uh, therefore was in great danger when all of those scientific ideas were about to be disproved uh, the great trial of Galileo uh, Galileo said that the all the planets revolve about the sun the church said all the planets revolve about the earth Uh, they forced Galileo to publicly recant his ideas but once the idea is out there uh, you can't put it back in the bottle and uh, it was uh, this uh, scientific error of the church and there were many such errors that sooner or later put the church in a very difficult position because of the fact that the wise men of the Renaissance all brought about great change in human thinking the world was no longer flat because Vasco da Gama had sailed around it shown it to be round the sun was the center of the of the galaxy and there were other scientific discoveries uh, Newtonian physics would come into play the ideas of gravity now all of these things took away these superstitions that had existed until now and to a certain extent uh, the church had thrived on those superstitions and now the scientific fact showed that the church was not infallible certainly in terms of science so then uh, part of the renaissance was that uh, people became uh, scholars became interested in Hebrew and in the Bible for instance uh, Rabbeinu Avadius Forno the great commentator to the Bible to the Chumash that we have uh, he taught the Johannes Reuchlin who was one of the leaders of Renaissance thought he taught him Hebrew and basically he taught him Chumash and the Jews were seen as a reservoir of knowledge the Jews were so there were no more Greeks left and there were no more Romans left we wanted to know something about the ancient world the only ones that knew anything about the ancient world were the Jews because they still were the ancient world and therefore uh, uh, but you have uh, you have the phenomena that we all know uh, that the world uh, likes uh, Hebrew but not Hebrews and the world likes Judaism but not Jews and uh, that existed throughout the Renaissance as well 
Now, the Renaissance had an effect on Jews as well, especially Jews in Italy, because uh, the Renaissance came to uh, uh, develop a rational world, and not an irrational one, not a supernatural one. And uh, we have here, for the first time, uh, a basic clash within the Jewish world of ideas. Uh, beginning with the Ramban and continuing for the next few centuries until the time of the Ari, Kabbalah became uh, much more influential in the Jewish world than it had been earlier. In the times of Rashi, we are unaware of Kabbalah. Uh, The Rambam apparently was unaware of it. But now everybody was aware of it. Kabbalah posits a mystical world, uh, a world that uh, negates to a great extent the real world, quote-unquote, that we exist in. It reinterprets the Bible and all of rabbinic literature in a different fashion completely. And it introduces a strong strain of mysticism, supernaturalism uh, into uh, Jewish life and Jewish custom. Now, there were those that opposed that. There were those that denied the uh, holiness of the book of the Zohar, which tradition ascribed to Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, but it was publicized by a man... Moshe de Leon in Spain at the end of the 15th century and they said that that was de Leon wrote the book it's not from Rabshim ben Yochai and it denied pretty much all of the Kabbalistic ideas Uh, that was Renaissance thought Renaissance thought was rational whatever you see, scientific And in Italy, there were a number of Italian rabbis, Arye di Modena, Azaria de Rossi, and others who led the anti-Kabbalah charge and who were, so to speak, already on the edge of tradition, if not outside tradition. Now, Azaria de Rossi, Azaria Mina Adomin, wrote a book called the Moore Naim, which proved to be very popular. And the Moore Naim uh, debunked uh, many uh, legends and even Agadah, uh, even uh, traditional Jewish legends. And the book gained wide circulation. Uh, the Maral of Prague, who was a Kabbalist, uh, took on uh, de Rossi and uh, bitterly uh, attacked him and in fact had his book banned which only increased its sales as is usually the case and now you had this split and uh, this split existed for centuries and centuries in modern times for instance German Jewry was hardly ever affected by Kabbalah. And even though amongst Lithuanian Jewry, 
there were many great Kabbalists, but the Lithuanian Jewry did not operate on a Kabbalistic system, whereas uh, Hasidic Jewry is purely Kabbalistic, and it operates under that system today. And uh, this is like a uh, disagreement that simmers below the surface. It has to do with a lot of what we see going on uh, in the disputes within the Jewish people. Is what kind of world are we living in? What's the real world and what's the imaginary world? And how do we react to either? All of this came about in the Renaissance. So the Renaissance affected Jews greatly. Now what happened was that Henry VIII wanted to get rid of one of his wives because he wanted to marry another one. And uh, England then was Roman Catholic. So he uh, wanted the Pope to grant him an annulment. One of the powers of the church is that it can annul marriages. The church does not recognize divorce, but it does allow for annulment. Now that's a slippery slope of how to obtain an annulment. The Pope and Henry could not agree for political reasons, diplomatic reasons, all sorts of reasons. So Henry uh, broke off from the Catholic Church and he created the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which is really the beginning of Protestantism, even though the Anglican Church at its core is basically an imitation of the Catholic Church, except that it does not recognize the Pope of Rome. for uh, a long period of time, over a century, there was a civil war in England between the Catholics and the Anglicans uh, with terrible atrocities committed on both sides until Queen Elizabeth finally, she killed uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic. Then James I was Catholic. But eventually England became officially a Protestant country. But the defection of England was not the main blow to the church. There were no Jews in England at the time, though Henry VIII had a leather-bound handwritten copy of the Talmud in his library, which you can see at the British National Library today. Uh, But uh, there were no Jews, and there were no Jews in France either to speak of. And there were no Jews in Spain because they were all expelled, with the exception of the conversos who constituted a significant part of the Spanish population. Uh, So uh, that didn't really affect the Jews. However, uh, what comes about is... uh, the church had a great uh, fundraising apparatus. Rome, uh, take, all, the, all religions require money. That's part of their problem. If we could have a money-free religion, a lot of problems would uh, dissipate. But everybody has to raise money. Their money corrupts. Their money corrupts even 
the most holy of uh, of items. The Torah says, "Ki hasholchad yaver that the corruption of money is such that it blinds the wise to the reality of the situation and it distorts the words of those who are tzaddikim, who are holy people. But even holy people, if they are tinged by money, so then it becomes a problem. Uh, no one has figured out, you know, how to do it without money. Though... Uh, in our time, I would say that money plays a far greater role than it ever has in Jewish life. That's because there is so much money. You know, if everybody is poor, so everybody is poor. So there's not much money around. And uh, the less money around, the less corruption. But when there's a lot of money around and uh, the demands of religion grow... Uh, so then uh, the temptations for corruption are enormous. So the church always needed money. I mean, you take a look at the Vatican, you know, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't built by passing the, the poor box. And one of the ways in the Middle Ages that it raised money, an enormous sums of money, was the sale of what they called indulgences. Now, the idea of indulgences is as follows. It's really a great tool. The church has hundreds of saints, maybe thousands of saints. These saints are so holy that they build up credit in heaven. They've got an account in heaven of good things that they did. The church itself doesn't need all of that credit because the church by nature is holy so it's got all this surplus credit so it can sell it to you who need it a person is a sinner and we have to remember that in the middle ages and later even hell was a real place people took it into consideration very seriously in the modern world it doesn't exist even amongst the believers it doesn't exist but in that world it did exist and if uh, you look at the art of uh, Hieronymus Bosch and other great painters of the era and they paint what goes on in hell it's pretty frightening it uh, you know it gives you pause let's put it that way so if you didn't want to go to hell you needed credit and you don't have the credit because you're a sinner But the church can sell you credit. The church can sell you an indulgence. And the indulgence will allow you to escape hell. Because now you acquired some of the merits of saints who didn't need it for themselves so they can help you. That's a crude uh, description of indulgences, but it gives you the idea. And the church sold it. And they sold it on an enormous basis. And therefore, uh, the local parish priest sold it, the cardinal sold it, the bishop sold it, even the pope sold it, depending how much you needed. And everybody took a commission, because there's a brokerage fee 
in hell also and therefore uh, the church became uh, overridden with corruption and then there were fakes people who dressed as priests and said they'll sell you and they really didn't have the goods so there were con men I mean everything was going on I mean Judaism never had that system Uh, Judaism believes that everybody's pretty much on their own though uh, in our time we notice that there are people who are able to sell at least semi-indulgences amongst the Jewish people as well now this corruption eventually reached such levels that the people began to rebel against it and this was the primary reason uh, that a German priest by the name of Martin Luther arose and he had over 90 complaints about the church he nailed them to the door of the cathedral and uh, he demanded that the church reform itself Uh, the church naturally saw him as a heretic but he had gathered uh, enough popular support especially in Germany that the church couldn't get hold of him and they couldn't kill him and he uh, is the father uh, let us say of the Protestant movement certainly of the church that's named after in the Lutheran church and now there was a 30 years war in Europe between the Catholics and the Protestants religious wars never end they resurface in different forms but as we are witness there is no war like a religious war and this 30 years war uh, engulfed Europe devastated it and naturally it affected the Jews as well now Luther thought that because uh, he revolted against the Catholic Church he had the same idea that Muhammad had Muhammad said well the Jews don't believe in Christianity because it's uh, semi-pagan but uh, Islam is completely monotheistic has no uh, idols or symbols so the Jews will certainly convert to Islam and he was quite disappointed when that did not happen and because of that it turned him into writing very bitter things against the Jews in the Koran well the same thing happened to Luther Luther thought the objections of the Jews to Roman Catholicism were valid but that's because Roman Catholicism was semi-pagan, was corrupt, was coercive and therefore his brand of Christianity this new Protestantism would certainly be acceptable to Jews they would certainly want it and naturally the Jews didn't want it it made no difference to them whether you believed in the Trinity or not or whether you believed in the Pope and Rome or not none of those things had any effect upon the Jews and therefore Luther turned into a bitter anti-Semite a crude, a vulgar anti-Semite 
many of the things that uh, the Nazis wrote about the Jews were taken straight from Luther's writings about the Jews. Let me just share with you uh, just a few uh, words of his. All the blood kindred of the Jews will burn in hell and they are rightly served even according to their own words as they spoke to Pilate to the Roman Emperor so again the deicide that the Jews are guilty of verily a hopeless wicked venomous and devilish thing are the Jews and he goes on to say uh, that the Jews are only interested in money the only Bible that the Jews are ruled by is the droppings from the back of a female pig that is not too philosophic Uh, But it certainly says what the story was, what he felt about the Jews. And therefore, in the Thirty Years' War, the Jews were caught in a vice that no matter who won, they lost. And therefore, as a consequence of the Thirty Years' War, which mainly took place in Germany and Central Europe, the Habsburg Empire, etc., the Jews all tried to leave and moved east into Poland because that was not involved. Poland remained staunchly Roman Catholic as did Lithuania, as did Ukraine. There the problem was the Eastern Orthodox Church as I discussed with you last week. But the uh, church itself uh, did not suffer. Poland never became Protestant. And uh, the Jews therefore moved. And you have uh, an enormous Jewish migration into Eastern Europe. And Jews settled everywhere in Poland and in the Baltic states. And they built their communities there. Now originally they were invited into Poland by the Polish noblemen who felt the Jews would develop the country, which they did. And the Jews uh, had an affinity to Poland uh, they called it in Hebrew Polin, meaning here we will sleep over the night of the exile. Here, this is this is the place where we'll be. J.M. and the A.M. halfway through the final lecture in the uh, part one series of the Jews in Europe. It's by Beryl Wine. He's speaking about Protestant Europe. This is uh, the lecture we will play and conclude early tomorrow morning uh, here at J.M. In the AM, also part of tomorrow. Don't forget the uh, tomorrow is the third of Av, the day that uh, in 1994 that my father delivered the uh, Shloshim eulogy for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We're going to play that tomorrow um, here at JM in the AM at about eight o'clock Eastern time. Um, a reminder that on Tisha B'av, Charlie Harari is going to one week from today. Charlie Harari is going to be closing out the Tisha B'av observance with a um, special broadcast here at the Nahum Siegel Network with Project Inspire. It's called The Missing Link. It's hosted by Charlie Harari. That happens a week from today, 
toward the end of the fast right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. A reminder that the documentary Hidden, brought to you by Project Witness, projectwitness.org, is being shown tonight in the Young Israel of Avenue K at 2818 Avenue K at 8 p.m. and in the White Shul tonight, Empire Avenue in Farakaway tonight at 8 p.m. 718 Witness and projectwitness.org. Tonight's in the Chama Comfort event happening at the Teaneck Jewish Center. Seum starts promptly at 645, then the barbecue. Information, nechamacomfort.com, nechamacomfort.com for information. Uh, the annual Yom Iyun for the um, Amit Goldemeir chapter in Staten Island is today starting at 10 a.m. at the Young Israel of Staten Island. Andy Goldsmith, Dr. Smadar Rosenswag, and Dr. Yael landman Wormuth are all going to be speaking. And tomorrow in the five towns at the Sephardic Temple, Dr. Shoshana Pupko in the Amit Annual Day of Learning in the five towns. Information about both, amitchildren.org, amitchildren.org. Reminded a bake sale to benefit the Lone Center, the Lone Soldier Center in Israel, in memory of Shlomo Rindenauer, happens this Thursday and Friday beginning at 10 a.m. at Breezy's at 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Information, contact the Lone Soldier Center. And Rabbi Wine, who's been dominating our nine days spoken word format, is going to be speaking Sunday night at Beth Abraham in Bergenfield, New Jersey, on the topic of destruction and redemption, the month of Av in our world. Information, jewishdestiny.com, jewishdestiny.com. I also remind everybody that one week from today, one week from today, the Tisha B'Av Mincha service takes place at the Isaiah Wall. Uh, make sure to be there. Bring your talis and tefillin. Again, Mincha, Isaiah Wall, New York City, 43rd and 1st. That happens uh, this coming Tisha B'Av, Tuesday, one week from today, starting at uh, 2 p.m. Information, you can contact uh, Amcha. We'll, we'll give out that uh, phone number uh, tomorrow on this broadcast. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and on the beloved NSN app. And that closes out this uh, Tuesday edition of JM in the AM. Plenty more tomorrow starting at 6 in the morning Eastern time. Make sure to join us and keep it on our network all through the day for the... Um, Three weeks, nine days, appropriate selections. Have a fabulous Tuesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.